And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, from the land of enchantment where almost anything can happen, has happened, and may in the future happen. In fact, we're going through some very extraordinary things for planet Earth right now, and we will be getting to them shortly. As you know, for those of you who are new to the show, we kind of start the show with some items of news. And as I've been doing now for several weeks since the uh, Christmas weekend, um, we have two items in Radio with Pictures that pertain to the Webb Space Telescope, which was launched in Christmas uh, a couple, three months ago, and is now in the process of commissioning its instrumentation. For those of you who are new, if you want to find out to get to Radio with Pictures, what you do is you uh, click on our URL, the other side of midnight. That will take you to our homepage. Uh, you want to look at the banner for Sunday, March 13th, which is this gorgeous view of the Zimbabwe ru uh, ruins at um, sunset. And it says the 50-year-long hyperdimensional journey of an Emmy Award-winning South African filmmaker and producer, and under the banner is the name Lionel Friedberg. Click on that banner. That will take you to Lionel's guest page. And right under the banner on the guest page, you'll see where it says Fast Links to Items. Uh, click on my name. That takes you down to Radio with Pictures. And there, Items 1 and 2, um, there is a kind of a backgrounder as part of the web NASA blog tonight. They're talking about, there's one investigator who was talking about how he is going to use Hubble. Uh, Hubble. I, I keep doing that. It's Webb, Webb. <laughs> the Webb Telescope, the new 20-foot-wide primary mirror infrared telescope to survey ancient, 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 ancient galaxies. The first galaxies that were born after the proverbial Big Bang, uh, which should be within a couple of hundred million years of that moment in 3D time, and they're, he's going to try to look at what's called the metallicity. What is metallicity? Well, a star like the sun, which is like third, fourth generation, has been able to scarf up in its formation process a lot of interstellar material from previous supernovae in the galaxy, which, uh, you know, stars, you know, cook elements, and then they blow up and they spew the their contents into the interstellar gas and dust clouds and then new stars are born and the new stars incorporate the material that was cooked in the older generations. So the sun is a late generation. What we're looking for with Hubble is Hubble. Webb, I'll get this right, is the earliest moments of star formation where primarily the only elements in the entire universe were hydrogen and helium with a absolutely whiff, just a whiff of much heavier elements from you know, lithium and boron and oxygen and carbon and iron and all those good things. Those are cooked in stars. So Webb is going to be used to look back in time almost to the beginning of what we define as the Big Bang, when things radically changed and the universe we currently inhabit was born, all of which is now going to be reanalyzed with new Webb data. Anyway, 
they're going to appear, you know, billions of years, almost 13.4 or 5 billion years back in time to see when those first stars formed and to see what their percentage of the light elements, hydrogen and helium are, compared to the heavy elements. And the expectation is we will see uh, almost no heavy elements, just a trace, just a tiny, you know, 0.001%, something like that. But science is always about surprises. These are models based on previous observations. What if Webb looks way back to almost the beginning of the current era called the Big Bang and it sees stars? Actually, it can't see individual stars that far away, but it sees galaxies made of stars, 100 billion or so stars. Suppose it sees that their metallicity is much higher than the models predict. What does that tell us? I mean, well, we'll get into this, you know, in the next few weeks because Webb is going to do, like Hubble did, usher in a stunning new revelation in um, who we are, where we are, why we're here, all those important, huge, crucial questions, which, of course, is the reason you tune in to the other side of midnight. I guarantee you this program, this radio show, which is broadcast around the world in something like 193 countries, it is unique. I, I dare you to find one other program which even comes close to what we do every Saturday and Sunday night. Item number two in Radio with Pictures is another NASA link. It's kind of where is Webb? Webb is not in low Earth orbit. Webb is not orbiting the moon. Webb is a million miles away from Earth, away from the sun, orbiting in a lazy six-month-long what's called a halo orbit. Um, a point in space called the L2 position. And you can Google what L1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 mean. Uh, Google is your friend, so use Google, and I don't have to say it here. Item number three. Um, we're obviously now uh, a little over two weeks in, 18 days, 19 days, into this catastrophe unfolding in uh, Eastern Europe the Russian war of aggression against uh, Ukraine. And for the first time, there seems to be, from both sides, a glimmer of hope that this can be brought to a reasonably swift end. Um, there are going to be talks uh, this morning at my time, about uh, 2.30 a.m. my time, about an hour and a half after we get off the air, they're supposed to meet again, high-level ministers from both the Russian and the Ukrainian side, and this time they apparently are serious because both sides put out very positive press releases uh, in advance. So let's pray, and I do not use that term lightly, that this insanity comes to an end as swiftly as possible because it is insane. Item number four. Um, a U.S. journalist who was on assignment for Time, who's worked for the New York Times and a whole bunch of major news outlets, a photojournalist uh, who, with his brother, has been covering this war, who is taking pictures of refugees. I mean, we have something like two and a half million refugees created in only uh, the first two weeks of this catastrophe while photo-documenting refugees uh, trying to leave the 
bombarded cities, um, some Russian soldiers at a checkpoint literally shot him, Brent Renault, at point-blank range, killing him uh, and wounding his uh, uh, fellow journalist who was in the car uh, with him. And, of course, this is totally senseless because without frontline journalism, you know, where are we? We don't see anything. In fact, that is a very appropriate segue to my guest of the morning, who is Lionel Friedberg, who is probably um, someone that can relate to uh, what I've just discussed because Lionel, for most of his professional life, has been a journalist, has been a documentarian, has been a filmmaker in all kinds of amazing and not so amazing locations on this planet. And um, uh, let me give you some more background. He's an Emmy award-winning producer and New York Times best-selling author who spent about 50 years making films from uh, in venues as, as diverse as the uh, theatrical features, television documentaries, television series. He grew up in South Africa, which of course is going to be part of my opening gambit of questions, during the much-troubled era of apartheid and began his career, his professional television and film career, uh, during the dying days of colonialism. Remember 19th century colonialism that kind of leaked over into the first half of the 20th century in Central Africa. Um, he eventually settled in Los Angeles where his work took him from the sound stages of Hollywood to the most remote regions of the planet. His career has exposed Lionel to an extraordinary series of wonders and brought him into close contact with many unforgettable personalities, from maverick scientists to politicians, from well-known entertainers to people who have literally survived near-death experiences and then told him the details. Lionel's lifelong observations have taught him that, as Haldane once said, life is far more complex and infinitely stranger than we can even begin to imagine. Example, when he was struck by an unexpected life-threatening illness that Western medicine could not, could not confront, his efforts to find a way to save his life took him back to Africa, where he encountered the age-old rituals and healing methodologies of African shaman. In his direct experience, their still mysterious ways to many have much to teach us in the Western world and are as relevant today as they were in ancient times. Lionel Freeberg is the man who brought us famous television shows such as Ancient Mysteries, Mysteries of the Bible, and History's Mysteries for Discovery Channel, History Channel, National Geographic, etc., etc., etc. His latest book, um, uh, and I'll, I'll have that here momentarily, uh, Forever in My Veins, um, is a really interesting deep dive into shamanism, near-death experiences, interviews with the dead, UFO encounters, and all manner of other strange paranormal, you guys know how I hate that word, so you should kind of substitute hyperdimensional experiences in between. Without further ado, Lionel, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Gosh, Richard, uh, what a beautiful intro. Thank you so much. It really is my pleasure to, to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Well, I, I, I really wanted to have you on because we're watching, you know, kind of frontline 
um, early warning radar for those of us on the other side of the planet uh, of what's going on in uh, Ukraine. And early this morning, or I guess late last night, we lost a journalist, Brent Renau. And I just wondered, you've been all over the world, you've been in all kinds of situations. Have you ever felt as a journalist, as a filmmaker, as a documentarian, uh, that you were in a position where literally it was an eye blink between life and death? Uh, the uh, the answer to that is 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 is, is yes, uh, and it and it does not always pertain to conflict such as what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, I have been my life has been uh, on, on a on a on a very thin dividing line between survival and death in many instances, but uh, but some of those most of those in actual fact have been because of other reasons such as ships that almost capsized. Uh, and uh, elephants who were charging and, you know, almost being trampled to death by an, a stampeding herd of elephants, things of that nature. I was, in my very early years, in my early years of my career in Central Africa, I did go to the southern part of what used to be the Belgian Congo, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But at that time, when I was up there in Central Africa, the southern part of the Congo was trying to get its independence from the rest of the Congo. And I went to a city called Elizabethville. Today it's called Lubumbashi. But those days, during colonial days, when it was still when it still belonged to the Belgians, uh, Elizabethville was in turmoil. And, you know, there was uh, the city was being torched destroyed there were riots on the streets uh, you know so I've, I've seen the worst and the best of human nature and uh it, it gives you a perspective of you know how capable we humans are of doing amazing and wonderful and extraordinary things and yet the darkness that sometimes is just on the other side of the line you know a lot of folks uh, still go there and uh we don't have to name names but the man behind this awful situation in the Ukraine at the moment, you know, is one of those figures who who can who represents the worst of us uh, and what we're capable of of doing and being. So yes, my life has been in danger, and what you come out with from all of those experiences is a sense of gratitude. And um, if it's a natural disaster or a situation like a storm at sea where the ship may be capsizing any moment. You know, it gives you a respect for the natural world. Um, and so, what can I say? Well, uh, it actually gives you the sense that you're not in control. Even when that, we think we're in control, we're not in control. That is so true. That is so true. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you learn from those things. Uh, and one has to be always, You, I think another thing that one learns from that is that, you know, you've always got to be prepared. I, I always, uh, I don't say, you know, look over my shoulder all the time because that sounds a little bit, you know, sort of uh, um, 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 uh, as though I'm, I'm obsessed with you know, always checking out what's going on behind me. But be mindful of the fact that you're not always sure of what might happen. So be prepared for anything. The old scout's motto, you know. <laughs> be prepared, yes. It's, it's, it's a truism. And certainly in the film industry, and particularly when you when you make documentaries, particularly in, in hostile places and faraway places and places far away from, you know, hospitals and cities and urban areas and all the rest of it, you know, one has to be prepared. You've got to go about that with a sense of respect 
but always be prepared for the inevitable. Because as sure as the sun rises tomorrow, the inevitable can happen at the flash, at the blink of an eye. Um, I've been wanting to ask you this question ever since uh, Gavin contacted me and suggested that you come on. Um, were you born in South Africa? I was. Because ah, nowhere I, in your in the material, I read a lot of background material or tried to, did it say you were born? It said you grew up, that you were there during this incredible transition between the old South Africa and the current modern state, the Mandela state, I guess we could call it. But it never says you were born there. And I didn't want to presume, so that was going to be one of my first questions. What was it like growing up, having been born in, in that particular part of the world at that particular time? I was born in 1944. Um, I'm now 77. Um, I've been around the block once or twice. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, so yes, my childhood was spent in, in during the apartheid era and during the worst years of apartheid because apartheid really began to get particularly ugly after the year 1948 when the Nationalist Party, which was, of course was an all-white uh, political party, came to power, and the 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 followers of that party were essentially, you know, Afri Afrikaans-speaking, as opposed to the English uh, population in South Africa who voted for the opposite party. They gained power, and when that happened, uh, some pretty nasty characters, you know, began to run the country, and. Uh, that's when apartheid was formed. So I saw the worst of it during the 50s and the 60s when laws were entrenched, you know, in the statute books of the country that there would be separate everything for everybody, separate beaches, separate banks, separate, you know, churches, separate entrances to stores, separate trains, separate uh, platforms on the railroad station, everything. This country was divided right down the middle. The twain never met between white and black. It was absolutely impossible for you to socialize with black people. Blacks, of course, worked in the white urban areas as servants or in factories or in industries and so on, but they could not live there unless they had special permission to do so. And when they did, they, it was usually as servants living in a back room, you know, down at the back the bottom end of the garden in a little tiny room. Uh, but can, it, the most people, most, most, the most of the black population lived outside the white cities in what were known as townships that was set up by the political regime to uh, accommodate them. And in the mornings, they would take a train and come into the white urban areas and then work and then go home at night. And uh, heaven forbid, you know, if you broke your curfew, you would be arrested. Uh, so I, I saw all that. And even as a child, and I'll, I'll give you a, an example. Well, of but before you go, though, let me ask a really dumb question. But yeah. It may not be dumb on the part of a lot of people because um, my preconception was apartheid was a very old institution like slavery was here going back you know 400 plus years are you telling me that it was that white nationalist party in 1948 that introduced the concept of separate but equal or not even equal in south africa yes that's exactly what i'm saying now, so it's within I it's within our lifetimes yes absolutely however ah. however richard bear in mind that uh, 
um, racism and things of that nature have been with us for centuries, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah. From way back. So that's there's nothing new in that. And of well, course, I have some very radical ideas on that. I think that it was been baked in for a very long time as part well, of, of who Absolutely. we really are. I don't yeah. think it's a matter of socialization. I think it's much deeper and yeah. much more pernicious. And yes. again, unless you properly diagnose a problem, you'll never yes. solve it. And I don't think any of the current discussions of racism as yeah. part of the human condition have yeah. approached the level of the deep-seated complex origins of yes. this incredible, uh, horrible aspect of humans. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the caste system in India, that's been around for thousands of years, and that's the same, it comes from the same place. You know, one group of people looking down upon another. It's been around during the, the Greek era, it was around during Egyptian times, it was certainly around during Roman times. So it's been around forever. And once colonialism came to the fore, and foreign countries, and I'm, let's talk about Africa, you know, basically Africa was divided into chunks of territory that were owned and run and controlled by European powers, only because they had the, value, the, 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 the virtue of the gun and the cannon and the local population did not. Right. They took over Africa and in 1880, I think it was, in, at a big conference in Berlin, people sat down with quill pens and cigars and brandy and sat around a big table and divided Africa up into little chunks and pieces and said, this is yours, this is mine, this is, belongs to France, this is Italy's, the Belgians can have that, the Brits can have this, you know, the Germans can have that. And they basically carved up a continent. Um, so it's been around forever. What, what I mean when I say that apartheid goes back to 1948, I'm talking about the official entrenched policy. In other words, legally, by law, there would be no contact between members of society. And that happened in 1948 in South Africa. Okay, course, so hang on, hang on. Let, 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 me, let me take you back because obviously this was, you know, literally within in your incredibly early years. So you don't. I, I guess maybe you don't remember, but what was the culture of South Africa with whites and Africans, Native Africans, mingling together, having commerce, having relationships, going to the same schools? What was it like before the Nationalist Party defined two separate races, never the twain shall meet, in '48? Well there was always a division in society always you know the, the whites always stuck to themselves and they had their own hospitals and their own schools to some extent um there was a degree of a sharing of power earlier on and when one when, when am i talking about i'm talking about you know probably during the 18th and 19th century where blacks were actually given the right to to vote for people in power in in certain areas but all that was taken away by apartheid they mm. couldn't participate in the political machinery in other words the who runs so, so apartheid in 48 was a giant step backward from a slowly developing culture that may have achieved something very different if that had not intervened it's probably a good way of putting it. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I had an interesting conversation today with some folks. I, I'm up in the Bay Area at the moment as I speak ah, to you. And my old people stopping about apartheid. And, you know, apartheid, South Africa is complex. And uh, why? The, the first white settlers who came to South Africa were the Dutch 
and we're going back to the year 1652. And they established a colony down at the Cape of Good Hope, and that became what is now Cape Town and the Cape Province, right? Um, the British settled on the eastern side of the country, and they established a, a, a British colony there, um, at, at which eventually became the province of Natal. So there was always conflict between these two groups of people. Now, we're just talking white upon white. The, 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 the Dutch and the British were always, you know, uh, um, sparring over territory. Were the Afrikaners from the Dutch lineage? They were, they, they were direct descendants. Wait a minute. We have lost your audio. Yes. Can you hear me? Now you're back, yes. So the Dutch were descended directly, uh, the, the Afrikaners were descended directly from the, the original Dutch settlers. Ah. And, and Afrikaans, the language of Afrikaans is, uh, is if, you know, if you, if, you, if you taught Afrikaans as we all were as kids in school and you go to Holland, you can basically understand what people are talking about because it's very closely associated with uh, Netherlands, uh, Dutch. Uh, it's also... Uh, do, you, do you still speak it? Oh, absolutely fluently, fluently. Say something. Anjana <laughs> McKenis, uh, uh, which means it's a pleasure to meet you. Ah. Uh, it's actually a very colorful language, and it's a language that I have a great fondness for because it, the, the language of Afrikaans is, is extraordinary when you use it uh, uh, to um, um, convey humor. It's got a wonderful colorful aspect to it that 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 is absolutely rich and diverse and it's wonderful when you tell jokes or uh you know you basically want to convey a sense of humor afrikaans is is, is one in a million it's a wonderful language <laughs> but it's also a very beautiful language it's wonderful afrikaans poetry there have been great afrikaans poets over the years um so you have this background of dutch and british you know sticking their flags down in the African soil and saying, this is mine and this is yours. And the time eventually came where the Dutch were, were, were beaten, were, were taken over. There was a war down at the Cape of Good the, Hope. With the, 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 the Boer War? No, long before that. Ah. I'm talking about the year 1795. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. 1795. The British decided that they wanted the Cape of Good Hope for themselves. Let's understand one thing. Why was the Cape so important? Well, it, there was, this was before the Suez Canal. Exactly. So it's the halfway station between Europe and Asia and, and the spice routes. Now, remember, there was no refrigeration in Europe. Yep. How do you keep food fresh? Well, you use spices and you, you, you basically, you know, you, 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 you pickle foods, you preserve them with spices. The spice route was absolutely critical to the survival of Europe and the preservation of food, which has made, made the Cape so important as a trade route, as a halfway station, because of the spice trade between Europe and the Dutch East Indies, India, what, what is today Malaysia, the Philippines, and so on, where you get this rich variety of, 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 of foods, of, of spices. And so the Cape of Good Hope was very, very important in terms of trade. And so eventually the British decided, well, you know, the Dutch have owned the place long enough, let's have a war and take it over from them. Well, they did, and then they lost it, and they got to gave it back to the, to the Dutch, but by, in 1806, there was another war, and the British finally won and took over the Cape of Good Hope. So now you have this huge Dutch population living there, and they now have to pay taxes to the king in London. 
and they did not like the idea at all. And so they decided to pack their wagons, very similar to the Calistoga wagons that came across the prairies here in the United States, and they moved away from the Cape of Good Hope into the hinterland of Africa, into the middle of nowhere. In fact, if you looked at maps from those those years, the maps in Latin would say terra incognita. In other words, they have no idea what's there, which is where we get the term Africa, the dark continent, because they knew nothing about what lay in the interior of Africa. So the Dutch moved away from the Cape in order to escape British rule and establish two independent republics for themselves. So now what have you got? You've got a British um, um, uh, uh, um, controlled area in the Cape, and then you've got a British controlled Final. area. We are at yes. the bottom of the hour, so let's pause. Oh. This is fascinating and very important for the rest of our conversation. I have a little surprise for you. I went went digging around and I found some really amazing South African music for our breaks tonight. So this might take you back. I don't know whether it's that old, but it sounds really cool. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, who is an Emmy Award winning producer. He's produced a lot of the television you watch without knowing who is behind it we shall return but what he said was I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So what you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. 
the fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize you know when you, you you're, you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them and good luck with that hello everyone my name's gareth ike it's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news fantastic conversation with kinthea timothy and anetta and i wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night. Eventually to be turned into Monday morning, another week for everyone. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, who is an Emmy Award-winning producer. Lionel, how many times does it get boring for you to hear that you're an Emmy Award-winning producer? (laughs) Never, I'll bet. Never. I don't want to sound arrogant about it, but it sounds pretty good when people oh, say Oh, come it. on. Hey. How many Emmys have you actually won? Uh, two. Two? Wow. Yeah. And now, is it true, like, the, with the with the Emmys and with the you know Oscars and all that, that just yes. being nominated is a real honor at... Uh, yes? No? Maybe? Oh, it's, it's absolutely true, certainly. I mean, uh, a nomination is is as important or as good as a win, but somebody's got to, it's, you've got to whittle it down to one particular <laughs> Some, I mean, Go ahead. It, it, it's recognition by your peers, and, and it's it's really about, you know, just recognizing and and appreciating the fact that you're being recognized for what you've done. And, you know, when people say, you know, you've done a good job of work, I mean, it, it, usually five, 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 five people or five movies or whatever it is, uh, I mean, that you know, it's it, all, 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 all of you have, you know the fact that you're being written out of out of thousands i mean how many submissions yeah. oh, are yes. there for uh, emmys and oscars and you know those those very limited awards we see on the shows every well, spring you know if you if you think about the size of the industry in in in, in just in los angeles alone there are probably in the region of 200 uh, 250 maybe 300,000 people involved in the industry wow uh, and that's that's huge, you know. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of people, and, you know. And everyone is trying their best. So when they select five of you and they say, and they say to you, "You did a good job this year. We recognize you." I mean, you know, you you've got to be appreciative of that. As uh, as uh, you know, some people have actually turned it down when George C. Scott was nominated and won the Academy Award in 1971 for playing George Patton in the movie Patton. Right. He turned- because he said, this is a lot of poppycock. He said, you know, it, it, it's not about how, how good you are and being given awards. And he turned it down, which I thought was a little arrogant, but never mind. That was his, you know, his point of view. I think if people say, you know, we want to recognize you for what you did, 
and give you a little statuette for you to put on your mantelpiece, take it and say thank you very much, you know, and go home. Well, and be... Didn't didn't Marlon Brando, instead of physically being there to accept his one year, he sent yes. Willow Wand or so, this gorgeous Indian maiden yes. all dressed out in costume and she accepted yes. it for him? I thought that was a very bizarre, like either be a man and accept it or like yes. Scott, turn it down, but to have yes. a surrogate. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, weird. Well, that, that's happened on more than one occasion, but that's usually because the person who's been nominated uh, is either involved in another production and is out of the country. I mean, that's, that's happened many times. This was before the era of Zoom and Skype, etc. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let me, let me, let me uh, go back to those thrilling days of yesteryear. You're yeah. born in South Africa in 44. You're right. growing up. In 48, there's this really amazing wall built between, you know, the cultures. Yeah. When did you wind up realizing, I'm out of here? Uh, well, as a child, uh, you know, we were all privileged whites. So we had nannies. We all had a nanny wow. or we had a servant at home. Every white household had that you know it's like uh, the old days here and in the united states where you had a black servant certainly in the deep south and whatever else you know but i mean homes a lot of homes and even in europe you know you had servants and in south africa you always there was always a servant either someone to do your cooking or your laundry or take care of the kids or whatever else and uh so i i always had a nanny and um and I remember every single one of them with enormous affection. I see their faces in front of me, you know, often I think about them. I've got photographs of them. In fact, I've got photographs of every single one of them in my book, Forever in My Veins, because I was so grateful to those those wonderful human beings, those wonderful people who helped to bring me mm -hmm. up. My, I was the only child. You did and, that so skillfully. You know, So skillfully. Both, <laughs> both my parents, you know, were working. So... Uh, I had this wonderful nanny. And here's what happened one particular, you know, one day I was going down the street. I must have been probably my first or second year at school. And it was the afternoon. And, you know, I went for a walk with her down the, down the road. She was going to visit a friend. And um, as we went down the road, I was living in a small town just to the east of Johannesburg, literally 20, 20 minutes away from Johannesburg. It's where the big international airport is now. Uh, the town is called Kempton Park. And um, and as we were going down the street, there was a, another black person walking on the other side of the road. Um, and suddenly um, a police van, you know, a cop car uh, arrived. We used to call them black mariahs. That was the terminology that we used for those things. So they pulled up and stopped that person. And, you know, my nanny stopped. I stopped and we watched this going on. And the, the cops got out of the white, white policemen, two of them, got out of this, this vehicle and frisked that person. It was a woman and said, you know, I, I could hear it distinctly speaking in Afrikaans, where is your papiro, which means where are your papers? Mm. And if she uh, didn't have the necessary documentation to be in that area at that time, she would have been arrested immediately. So fortunately, she had it. She pulled out this little, it was what they used to call it a pass book. And she pulled out this little book and she gave it to them and they sort of thumbed through it and they said, all right, fine. And they gave it back to her. They were very discourteous towards her, very rude and drove off. And I said to my nanny, I said, why, why did they do that? What did she do wrong? 
and she said, I can't explain it to you. I can't. I mean, you know, I was a kid. I was a child. So that night I said to my parents, I said, you know, I saw this event today and my parents said to me, be careful. Don't ask questions like that. It was dangerous to even talk about these things because you did not question authority and you did not question the cops. So even you- if you were white and part of the superior class, you were yeah. in a police state. It was not necessarily a police state, but it was discourteous towards authorities, and you didn't want to draw attention to yourself, so you just you went on you went on the radar of being one of them. Yeah, exactly. So you just didn't say anything. You kept quiet, you know. Mm. And as I grew up, it became very obvious to me that this was an iniquitous system that I was witnessing around me all the time. You go down to the railroad station, or you go down to the bus station, or you go down to the store. And blacks were going in in separate entrances, and we whites were going in. And, you know, it didn't make any sense. And, of course, as I grew up, and when, by the time I got to high school, and I was chairman of my debating society, an all-boys school, by the way, mm. and I was a bit of a, of a rebel because I was very critical of the racial situation. And um, I questioned it, as did some of my friends, not everybody. But we said, this is wrong. This is not the way to. we should be living. We should be more courteous towards our black neighbors. All we're doing is exploiting their labor. And, you know, um, I was very conscious of that, as were, as I said, a handful of, of my friends and certainly the members of my debating society were. And, you know, my father uh, was an immigrant to South Africa. My mother was born in South Africa, but my father was actually born in Latvia. Oh, and, my gosh. And he was trained as a watchmaker on, during the times when people still had mechanical watches, you right, know. Right, He was a watchmaker. And so he emigrated to what was then German Southwest Africa, Deutsche Südwest Africa. Today it's called Namibia. Those days it was German Southwest Africa. It was, it was a German colony. And, you know, my father um, grew up in Latvia. He did his watchmaker training um, in in um, in Hamburg, and that's where he left and went to German Southwest Africa. And so he was an immigrant. And from Namibia, from German Southwest Africa, you know, which was a, a huge, huge country with a population of less than a million people, he decided to find his fortune in South Africa. And so as a young man, he was in his 20s. He went there, eventually met my mother, they got married, and then I came about. So, you know, so he he always spoke out against the racist uh, um, uh, realities that were going on around us all the time. And he was, you know, he said, don't talk about it, but it's wrong. He didn't like it. He felt very uncomfortable about, about this. And and uh, and so, you know, in, in the year 1960, my, my father decided to leave the country because that was the height of apartheid. Things were pretty grim at that point. And uh, the feeling was among people who had some sort of liberal uh, thinking said, you know, this is an unsustainable system. This is never going to work. This cannot last. Ultimately, these people are going to rise up against us and probably going to kill us, as they did in the Congo and as they did in many other parts of Africa. Mm. You know, the Algerians rose up against the French. The Congolese rose up against the Belgians. And in many other parts of the country, there was civil war because they wanted their independence and they wanted to be acknowledged as, you know, full-scale citizens. Where where, where were the Mau Mau uprisings that I heard? Mau Mau was in Kenya. Ah. Uh, So, yes, and that was uh, that which was a British territory. 
and the Mau Mau, you know, the 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 Maasai and the and the people who lived, the indigenous people of, of Kenya, wanted their independence. I remember the, the National Geographic, which was, of course, our only window in those very right. closed years of right. other cultures around the world. The incredibly yes. proud Maasai warriors uh, standing right. there with their spears yes. and their robes and their lions and. Of course, yes, and you know we have we have tribes similar to that in South Africa. By the way, South Africa has eleven official languages today. Oh my which gosh! Gives you an idea of how many different tribal groups there are in South Africa, or, or ethnic groups, if you like. But the, the term there is tribes, and you know. So, as a white child, you know, when we were taught taught history, history began with the arrival of the Dutch and the arrival of the British. Oh my my! At, at there was no history in Africa. The African had no history. We were taught nothing about those great civilizations and empires that existed before the arrival of the white man. We were taught nothing about that. And, you know, so you, we were conscious of the fact that something was very wrong with all of this. So my father decided to leave the country in 1960 and um, took, a, took a job uh, at a little jewelry store way up in northern Rhodesia, which is right on the border of of the Belgian Congo, in just in order to get out of South Africa, and uh, and 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 my mother, of course, followed, and uh, eventually I followed as well, and that's a, how I eventually got to start my career, because in 1961, television came to Central Africa. It was uh, it was financed by a British company. And um, and the television station was set up in a copper mining district, which is where my father was living and working in this little store. And and like manna out of heaven, you know, I always wanted to make movies, and I did as a as a as a kid at high school. I used to make movies about our sports games, sports you know meetings, uh, um, friends' birthday parties, whatever else. I've been making movies since I was eleven. Did years you old. have your own eight millimeter camera? I was given a, a used eight millimeter camera by a cousin. Ah. And I was 11 years old. So from the age of 11 onwards, I was making movies. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. my, my. Yeah. You that, know. that seems to be a common refrain. I have a, I have a Hollywood friend, uh, Paul Davids, who yes. started uh, with an eight millimeter camera doing sci fi films that yeah. he wrote himself. And he was such a fan of uh, Harry Harryhausen. He did the, uh, he did the stop motion with the figures the clay yes. and all that and you of know, course you know, of course it's, it's amazing how those early years kind of forecast what we're going to wind up being yes of course Ray Harryhausen was a genius. I mean, his movies were just extraordinary. Yep, yep. I don't know if folks understand about this, but basically in the days of film, film ran at 24 frames a second. So what Harryhausen did was to expose one frame at a time with these little models, either made of clay or wire figures or whatever, and frame by frame he would animate these figures. So when you ran it at 24 frames, it looked like the, the, the creature was moving. I saw Mighty Joe Young the other night, and it yes. was a astonishing how realistic this of course is light years before cgi and all that right. and right. it was it, it, this this gorilla this big gentle gorilla mighty joe young yes. picked up in africa uh, yes. a cautionary tale uh yeah. was done in that stop motion harry uh, ray harryhausen um yeah. modality but it was incredibly realistic still well let me draw your attention to perhaps the, the the beginning 
of, of, of stop motion, which really brought it to the public's attention, was 1933 with King Kong. Yes, of course, of course. And, you know, that was... Uh, Clinging that to the Empire State Tower, was stop swatting, motion. swatting airplanes. Yeah, yeah. You know, the stuff they did those days was just absolutely extraordinary. And uh, my wife and I have just made a film on the man who wrote the music for that movie, uh, a man called Max Steiner. Oh, one of, one of my favorite composers. There you go, Max Steiner, yeah. You know, he wrote the music for Gone with the Wind. and But uh, King Kong, he wrote the music for that too. And he also wrote the music for Casablanca and lots of... Yep, yep, yep. But King Kong, it was an extraordinary film. And his music brought that ape to life. Uh, because the stop motion was so real and Max's music was so uh, driving and and scary. Yeah, you know, the audiences were terrified. He was kind of like the, uh, this will be, you know, familiar to some people, the original John Williams. Yeah, yeah exactly. And what Max Steiner was, 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 was the granddaddy of movie music. He was the first guy to say to producers, because, you know, uh, they didn't use music as background music behind the action. If there was a band or an orchestra... In well, during the, the silence, they would have piano players in to player. provide yeah. some kind of sound, but they played almost like anything, you know, yeah. during car chases or train chases. Sure. That would, da -da -da, da -da -da -da, you know, right. but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't atmospherically mood-driven. And not, and not written to the action on the screen. You know, yep. someone does something and then you give each character an identity, a leitmotif, as it's called. Mm. You give each character a theme. And Max was the first person to, basically, Steiner was the first person to do this. So, you know, he was the granddaddy of movie music. And uh, it all began, uh, you know, with with, uh, with, with Warner Brothers uh, in, the, in, the, in the 30s. Of course, Warner Brothers were the first people to make a, a talking picture in 1929. L. Johnson Johnson in the in the jazz singer, which mm. was extraordinary, even when you look at it today. Now that wasn't that was not the entire film was sound. There were scenes where L. Johnson sang, and there was a big, large record which looked like the old LPs <laughs> attached to the projector, interlocked mechanically, that played, and that was the when he sang. That was used to synchronize his voice with the action on the screen. You know, a big clunky, difficult system. It was only when the when the when when the invention came about to put to print a soundtrack on the edge of the of of the of, of the, the roll film of the film that things changed and where where the talkies became as popular as they were. And of course, then you know the studios realized that Max Steiner was right. They needed music behind the dramatic scene when two people kiss or two two people fighting a sword fight or whatever. You need music to accentuate the action wow where did i see the other day someone has a max steiner club or an association or something there's a society it's been around for a long long time yeah and uh and the movie that i'm talking about now on max steiner is actually going to be running pretty soon on on two channels i don't know if i can mention them but they'll they'll be available oh, by all means go ahead it's going to be shown on turner classic movies over a period of five years and also on HBO Max, and I think folks should look at that because oh it'll give them God, yes. a real insight into how movie music began and the role that this man played in that story. Hmm. Okay, back to our program. <laughs> yeah. So, so you emigrated with your family when you were in your teens. Yes, uh, exactly. In, in high school to Rhodesia. 
I finished high school and my mother said when then when my father decided to leave the country my mother said you staying here because you're going to go to college you're going to go to university and get a degree and I said I'm not and then she said you are and I said I'm not what uh-huh. I want to do because you know I had been going to the movies right through my childhood and I saw every Tarzan movie every Saturday afternoon at the movies and I saw all those wonderful adventure films, you know, like King Solomon's Mines and the African Queen and all those things. And when my folks decided to go to Central Africa, I thought, God, there's my opportunity. I'm going to take my eight millimeter camera and make movies like that. Oh, my gosh. What an and idea. I said, I'm not going to. I want to make movies. I want to go there. And, you know, they, they, they didn't win the argument. So I followed them up. <laughs> When I got to this area where they were living, I mean, what did I see? There was jungle or bush and trees from horizon to horizon, no movie studios, and cars. That's all there was. So, you know, I thought, what have I done? And then suddenly this television station was was built to provide entertainment to the miners who were earning a lot of money. Um, And they needed entertainment. So this television station suddenly arrived in the middle of the African bush, and I got a job there, and that was the start of my career. In the mornings, we would have we used to have educational broadcasts for for school kids who were living in the bush, and I'm talking about black black children. And in the afternoon, for adult uh, black uh, ethnic groups in the area, there were tribes who would arrive on trucks at the studio and with their drums and their grass skirts. It was magical. <laughs> and then at night, we would have Leave It to Beaver and Bonanza on film. For the white audiences, you know, it was amazing. But and, you had to do everything in studio because your cameras were the yeah. basic of the size of a small loo. Exactly. That's exactly right. But we did have a film projector. So there was no videotape those days, but we did have film. Nope. Otherwise, everything was live and in the studio. But at night, we had all these local, these shows, the, uh, just two weeks after they were transmitted here in Hollywood and in the United States or in, in England. We had the latest British and uh, American television shows. Well, they would, they, they would fly the film over. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and we would run them at night. So, you know, we had we, we, we were watching Dr. Kildare two weeks after you guys were watching them here. Oh, you know? my God. <laughs> In the middle of Africa. So, so, what, so when it started out black and white, of course. Of course. Oh, when, when did it go color? Were you still oh, there? That, that was way, 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 way later. But here's the interesting thing, Richard. I think I should tell you this. Uh, you know, I started when the, when the television station was first put up, right? And in 1964, Northern Rhodesia, which is the territory I'm talking about now, um, was given its independence by Britain and was about to become the Republic of Zambia. And why, why is it called Zambia? Well, it's named after the Zambezi River, and that's why it's Zambia. Uh, why they decided to call it that. But when the decision was made to be, uh, the, 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 uh, the permission was given to the local population for their independence in 1964, in October 1964, the very first thing that the, that the new uh, government did was to nationalize the television station mm. because here. He has a potent media, a medium. I mean, you know, you could, you could, you could use it for, uh, for, for, uh, for, for uh, all kinds of purposes. So the government wanted control of it, and so they basically took it over. And when they did that, they said to everybody, everybody who was white working at the station, "Thanks very much. You've done a great job." Uh, and we understood their thinking, of course. Uh, 
It was now their country. And they said, but in six months' time, bye-bye. We don't want you anymore. Out of here. Hmm. And so I chatted because I didn't know what to do. Of course, my dream was to go to Hollywood. How old were you then? And then I was uh, – at that point, I was, I was 20. And uh, we, had, we had a man working for us, a young guy who wasn't much older than me at home, you know, who used to help my mother at home. Uh, again, you know, black servants. And the next day, he and I were great buddies because we, we had a lot of things in common. He was fascinated by photography. And I used to teach him on – we gave him a camera for Christmas one year. Ah. And I used to teach him how to use the camera. And his dream was to have a wedding studio one day and all that. And anyway, the day after we were all fired, all of us whites, I went to, to David the next morning. And I said, David, a terrible thing has happened. And he said, what? And I said, you know, we've all been fired. And he said, oh, no, that's terrible. I said, yeah. And I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I could go back to South Africa because there was a, a thriving film industry in South Africa, but I didn't particularly want to because it, of apartheid. Yeah. And I, and I said to him, what do you think I should do? You know, I mean, what he certainly had no uh, grasp of the situation or anything, but he thought for a moment and he said, let me ask some questions. And I said, like, from whom? And he said, I'll I'm going to ask some questions. I'll take you to somebody who will help you to find what you should do, where you should go, what you should do with your life. I had no idea what he had in mind. But the next Thursday afternoon, he and I were in my little beat-up VW Beetle, bumping our way on a dirt road into the bush, and he took me to a little village, and there was a little mud hut there, and he said, this is the place. I'm told this is the place. Here is the person who will tell you what to do. And I said, like, you know, in Africa, you don't ask questions. Uh, things happen without uh, making sense too much. And so I just threw my fate to, you know, to the wind. And I said, whatever you have in mind, I'll go along with it. And I went along to this little mud hut with David one particular day. And we went to this, 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 this knocked on the door. And a little old black lady came to the door. She spoke not one word of English. She looked like she was a hundred years old. And she invited us into her hut. And she told us to sit on the floor. And David said in English to me, she, he said, she wants you to sit on the floor. And on the floor was a grass mat. And on this grass mat was a little bag, a little animal skin bag. And this little old lady, she said to me, in Bemba, she said to David, and he translated, she, he, she said, tell him to pick up the bag, blow into it, say his name, and then turn the bag upside down, which is what I did. Okay, and hold it there. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. Okay. Perfect place to pause. This is called, folks, The Cliffhanger. If you're familiar with old-time movies and Saturday afternoon serials in the theater... My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, who, as you can tell, has been everywhere, done almost everything, and has lived to tell the tale. All the way from South Africa to Hollywood and television in the United States. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're playing South African oldies tonight as our bumpers. We shall return.
to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Back on this Saturday night, uh, no Sunday night, Sunday night, yes. See, I get my weekends mixed up because uh, there's so much going on. Sunday night here on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, who has been behind some of the most interesting television that you have watched and probably never knew where it came from, like history's mysteries and ancient mysteries, mysteries of the Bible. Mysteries, mysteries, uh, Lionel, seem to be a part of your universe. So you left us in this little hut in uh, Rhodesia um, with this ancient-looking shaman, a female shaman, who is telling you to basically breathe your breath of life into this, I guess, what, goatskin bag? And then something was supposed to happen. Take it from there. Okay. Uh... Music. Wait a minute! I'm, I'm, you're, you're breaking up for some reason. Are you there? I'm here. There I you love go. your, I love your choice of music, Richard. That's terrific. <laughs> well, I love uh, the fact that I found it. It's perfect. Uh, yes, it's, it's great stuff. It makes me pine for home. I tell you, it's. I wonderful. was hoping it would do exactly that. Anyway, so so you oh, met your first female so, shaman, right? Yes. So she says to me. Turn the bag upside down. It was basically made of a, of a deer skin, by the way. Um, small. Okay. And uh, I turned it upside down, and what fell out were a lot of little trinkets and little items. There were a couple of dice in there, a couple of bottle tops in there, a couple of old coins. But most of the objects, and a few stones and pebbles, but most of the objects were little bones, like small knuckle bones. They're little small, small bones. And what I learned later, which I didn't know at that time, but later on, many, many years later, when I uh, started making ethnographic films, I learned that every one of those bones had to come from a certain animal, from a hyena, from a lion, uh, from a certain, uh, uh, from a crocodile, uh, from a certain antelope. And each one of those bones had a specific meaning. And each shaman 
of course, interprets the bone their own way. But if the bone falls in one way, it means yes. If it falls on an, in an opposite, uh, uh, upside down, if you like, it may have a negative connotation. If it falls on its side, it could be a maybe. If one bone crosses another, and if it's a lion bone, for example, crossing a goat bone, it means that danger is coming. Some of these bones refer to your ancestors. The whole thing about African shamanism, I think people remember this above all else, is that it's very, very connected with the with the ancestors. All African shamans are very, very much uh, in, 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 in touch with the ancestral, the, the spirit world, the, the world of their ancestors. Because it's the ancestors who help them make their diagnosis when these bones are thrown and they fall on these little grass mats. If you have an illness, if you have a question, if you have some sort of uh, thing that you're pondering over and you need an answer, it's your ancestors, the belief goes, that it is your answers speaking to the ancestors of the shaman and to, it, it, telling that shaman how to interpret the way the bones have fallen. I guess the theory being that who else but someone who was part of you would care more. Uh, yes, your ancestors are very, very, very much part of your life, part of your being, and part of the way your fate uh, turns out in in your lifetime in in the African tradition. Your ancestors play a major role in that. So the belief goes in many, many African societies. Your 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 paternal and your maternal ancestors play a role in your life, and they can help heal illnesses. They can help you find the buried gold. They can help you find a wife. You know, they can do all kinds of things. And what this woman was doing for me, and I didn't realize at the time, you know, that she was a shaman. By the way, the, the name, the word in South Africa for shamans is Sangoma, which basically means, you know, one who can see the future. Ah. Uh, and uh, in Zambia at that time, uh, when I when I had this done, uh, the, the term used there is Ngoma, but... Um, in South Africa, that's called Sangomas, and I've had many, many, many experiences with many uh, Sangomas or shamans since then. So I, I prefer to use the word now, Sangoma. Do, here's another interesting aside. At least I hope it's interesting. Are yeah. these individuals um, predisposed? In other words, they they know from an early age they're going to grow up to be this kind of node on a hyperdimensional internet, or do they train for it? Do, does everyone have the talent, but only some choose to follow the profession? Very good question. Uh, you don't choose by yourself. You are called. You are called, and usually uh, it's the ancestors who are calling you. And how does it happen? You either are diagnosed with some kind of illness. You either have a migraine situation or you have an illness. You have a fever, and you go and see one of these people, and this person the shaman says, it's your ancestors who are calling you. You have this illness, you have the headache, because your ancestors are basically knocking at the door, telling you to pay attention. <laughs> Trying to get your attention. They have to say. And it is only through that that you are selected to become a Sangoma. You don't do it yourself. Um, unless you have a dream, which is very, very vivid, where you, you know, either dream of your grandfather or your grandmother or one of your ancestors, and you tell that to the shaman, and the shaman says, ah, yeah, you know, your ancestor's telling you. 
you have to practice medicine. You have to learn the way of the shaman. And you can't, it, this is a long and involved process that takes years. You have to sit at someone who knows what they're doing for a very long period of time, learn how to interpret the bones, learn how to find medicinal herbs and, uh, and, and uh, healing uh, uh, items out in nature by digging up bulbs and berries and leaves and barks and whatever else and dispensing that as medication. But most importantly is the ability to read the bones so that you can interpret questions and foretell the future of your client. Uh, it takes a long, long time to learn this. And um, so this is what this woman was basically doing for me. She was, she was basically foretelling my life. And here's what's so fascinating. So your friend really had an in. Well, he obviously knew someone. Who, that's what I said to you earlier. In Africa, you don't ask questions. You know, it's who knows who who lives on the other side of the mountain. You turn left at that tree, <laughs> and then on the other side of that valley, someone has an answer for you. That's how things go in Africa. So, so this is how he found this person. You know, he knew someone who knew someone who knew someone else, and so we went to go and see this woman. He had never met her before, and. Uh, you know, but it was the most extraordinary experience. And you know, when I went into the into this little hut for the first time, the smells were powerful, <laughs> very, very powerful. Uh, spices and fatty substances, and there were things hanging in the shadows that I couldn't make out what they were. Some of them were obviously animal skins, but a lot of them were roots and berries and barks and lots of little bottles and jars and clay pots with concoctions inside them. So she could dispense medicine as well as foretell the future. Uh, and so I knew I was in the, prop, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the company of someone who was pretty powerful and who knew what she was talking about. And what made me believe what she was saying was this. She started off by saying, the very first thing she said was after I threw the bones on this mat, she leaned over and she stared at the bones and then she grabbed her eyes and she, you know, put her hands in front of her eyes and then she looked, she, she, you know, turned her face up towards David, still holding her eyes. And she said, I can't see, I can't see, I can't see because I, the, the lights in my eyes are so bright. What kind of work does he do? Oh, my, my. When I heard wow. that, I said, I thought to myself, you had better pay attention to what the woman has to say because she's seen the lights in the television studio. That's what I was thinking, yes. Clean yeah. lights. Yes, exactly. She was seeing the lights in the television station. And, you know, David said to me, she wants to know what these bright lights are because she can't see anything. And I said, well, you know, I, that's where I, that is where I work. I work in the TV station. This woman knew nothing about television. She didn't, didn't have a television set. She didn't even have electricity. But that's what she was seeing. And, you know... Um, I, I, then I started to pay attention very, very carefully to what she had to say. I was trying to keep notes, and she was, she was, she was going at a dizzy rate. She was just spewing things coming out all the time, and David was trying to interpret. So she was what, channeling something. He was, he was trying to interpret, interpret what she was, what she was seeing. She was having visions, and she was trying to describe her visions to him, and he was in trying to interpret the Bemba language, which is what she was speaking for me in English, oh and my. trying to keep abreast of it. And you know, she told me stuff that over the years, and I'm talking about the next 60 years, 50 to 60 years, all of those things that she told me that day have all come to pass, they've all come true. 
Now, did I wait for those events to happen? No, of course not. Did I sort of know when those events were going to happen? No, absolutely not. But when those events did happen, I suddenly realized, oh, my God, this is what that woman foresaw all those years ago mm. in her little dark hut under the tree in Africa. And I'll give you an example. One of the things she says to David is, in his work one day, he's going to a, another world where there is no color. Everything is just white. There is no color in this world at all. And it's all about his work. I remember that vividly. And I had no idea what she was talking about. It sounded mm. like sci-fi, you know, straight out of the Twilight Zone. I could make a guess, but I won't. Go ahead. No idea what she was talking about. One of the other things she said to him is be he must be very careful of the great beast because for his work, one day he will be almost killed by a great beast in the bush. I had no idea what she was talking about. Mm. And another thing she said to him was she sort of clapped her hands as though she couldn't believe what she was seeing. She said to him, one day as part of his work, he will meet a man who knew the most evil person who ever lived. Now, you know, that sounds like something out of a, a you know, a, a, a horror story. What is, what is she talking about? I had no idea. He will meet a man who knew the most evil person who ever lived. Oh, my. I forgot, you know, I just put it aside and forgot about it. But, you know, let's talk about these three. There were many other predictions. But let's just, just talk about these three predictions. The the white world she was talking about. In 1990, I went down to Antarctica. Ah, ding, 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 ding. Kintia was and sending me a message. She said, the polls? For, and I uh, said, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I was doing a show for PBS, um, the public broadcasting system. We had a wonderful series on PBS called The Infinite Voyage, and uh, it was a science series. And uh, we were, we, it was, the series was done together with the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. It was, it was a very, very uh, serious science series. And um, the, uh, this particular show was all about uh, climate change and the ozone hole. At that time, the ozone hole, hole was a huge, huge, huge problem. So we went down to Antarctica to see is the let me let me interrupt you. Last night I discovered as part of research I did for last night's show yeah. that the ozone hole was discovered in the 80s obviously by one of the uh, Antarctic uh, Antarctic research stations, right? That's correct. By the by the British station. That's correct. Yeah, but you know that British station was turned over to another nation in 95. Uh, who took that, that station over? Because they had more than one base. Which Who took that over? It was the Faraday station, and it was turned over to Ukraine. Oh, my God. Isn't that interesting? Wow. How about that? Wow. Oh, my word. Doesn't that uh, send a cold? It, uh, it, it sends some shivers, yes, because there are other aspects to that that we can talk about off the air. So Yeah. Wow, that, that is amazing. Well, the main scientist, the guy who actually figured out what the ozone hole was all about and what was causing it was a man by the name of Sherry Rowland. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. for chemistry. At, at the Faraday Station, which is and, on that uh, Gillen Island, or I forget the exact yeah. name of the place there in, in, yeah. in the yeah. Antarctic. He he was in my show. Uh, he was a wonderful guy. And he, he together with a man called Maria Molina, figured out what was causing the ozone hole. It was hydrofluorocarbons. Yeah. Was in, and then uh, the miracle was the world got together and they actually yeah. solved and they, the they problem. That's exactly right. 
they they got rid of it in all the refrigerators. They got rid of it in all the aerosol cans. But the ozone hole hasn't gone away. It's still there, uh, but it hasn't increased vastly in size since those days. Fortunately, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, you you if you really want to put a thermometer into Mother Earth and find out if she's in a healthy state or not, you go to Antarctica. Why? Because there are no cities, there are no major population groups, and if something is going wrong with the environment or the ecology system of the area, you see it down there. You can tell the cruel populations, which are those tiny shrimp-like things. How are those populations doing? Are the oceans getting more acidic? Are the oceans warming up? What is happening deep inside the ocean underneath the ice? In the bubbles, as you drill down into ice and you take out ice cores, when you take those ice cores out, if you go like six feet down, you come in the ice core are little tiny bubbles, and in those bubbles are ancient atmospheres that go back centuries. Mm-hmm. And you can measure the increase of carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere by analyzing what's inside those bubbles. I think the column now extends over 100,000 years back in time. Yeah, so, you know, there was a lot of very, very hard science going on. And so I'm down in the Antarctic working on this show. I was the director of the show. We had So we're on a ship, uh, a research ship, uh, with a Norwegian crew, uh, it was an American ship, but a Norwegian crew, and a lot of American scientists, and my crew, um, and it was Christmas Eve, 1990, and at midnight, now we down there in December, so it's not dark, because in the southern hemisphere, when you're that far south, the sun doesn't set, it just yeah, touches. It's, 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 it's summer. Yeah, it, 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 uh, yeah it just, the sun goes down and then touches the horizon and comes up again. So it never gets dark. And um, so the captain decided at midnight to stop the ship. Now, you don't stop the ship completely because you're surrounded by ice. You don't want to get <laughs> trapped in the ice. Right. But what they do is they feather the blades on the propellers so that they're not biting into the water so the ship isn't going forward. But you keep those props revolving so they don't freeze up. You know, so he stopped the stopped the uh, the props from turning for a couple of hours, and everybody was partying because it was Christmas Eve. And while all this was going on, I you know I had a, a couple of drinks with the guys, and then I decided to put on my heavy pocket jacket, go up on deck and look around, and take my notebook with me, and you know write up about the day's filming because I always keep copious notes about everything. And I was sitting up on the deck, and there was a penguin on the other side of the ice floe, you know, and I was watching it, and I was writing in there, and I thought, how do I just describe this world when I write the narration uh, once I get back to the studio in LA how do I describe to viewers what it's like being down there and I and I the notes I made to myself was it's like being inside a, a translucent egg you're inside this white crystalline world hmm. and then I the my next line was it's like being in a world without color everything is white around <laughs> me and as I wrote that line, it hit me smack. Oh thing. my gosh! That's what she said. Holy this little God. old lady who knew nothing about the Antarctic. That's what she called it. And here I am. This is where I'm at. You know. And I can go on and on. Let me give you another example of one of the things she told me. You That's know, why is, we have a show that lasts many hours. So please do. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about this great beast that she was talking about. In the 1950s, one of the rages around the world was the hula hoop. Every kid around yep, the world. We all had one. <clears throat> had a hula hoop, right? We all had hula hoops. Yeah. 
The inventor of the hula hoop was a man by the name of Spud Millen. Arthur Millen was his name. And he had a toy company in L.A. called Whammo Toys. <laughs> and they marketed the hula hoop. And he made a fortune of money. He was a terrific guy, a really nice man. And the other thing that he marketed, that, that he basically brought to the market for the world, was the Frisbee. You know, he saw that being used by a bunch of Aboriginal... Oh, my God. He, he struck gold twice? Yeah, well, many times. He also had other things as well, but these were the two... Those, those are the huge ones, yes. Major ones, yeah. And so, you know, he was a very, very wealthy guy, and he decided to go on safari one particular year to Mozambique. Now, Mozambique, at that time, I'm talking about 1967. This is, I'm going back in time now. 1967, Mozambique was actually a province of Portugal, would you believe? There it is in Africa but it was a province of Portugal. That's how ridiculous the colonial system was. And so uh, Mozambique had a rich variety of wildlife. So when you went on safari down in Southern Africa, you know, if you went to East Africa, you go to Tanzania, Tanganyika or Kenya. And if you go to Southern Africa, you go to Mozambique or you go to what is today Botswana, where the wildlife is rich and plentiful. Those days, it's less so now, of course, very, very sadly, but anyway. And, and so he was. He decided to go on safari, and he had two buddies. One was a stockbroker. The other one was a lawyer, and they both lived in L.A., and they went with him. And I was offered the job to make a movie about that safari. You know, I, I was known as a, as a director uh, cameraman in South Africa, and I get a call one day from a producer in the States. Uh, are you interested in covering a, a safari film? I said, I wasn't because I really – was not interested in, in, in killing wildlife. It never made any sense. Would to this me, have I, been for like the Geographic or PBS or what? Uh, this was actually being made for Spud's company because they owned a half hour of airtime on a local television station in L.A. And uh, the toy company owned you had a oh, half okay, hour. Oh, okay, okay. So he wanted one, 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 of the, one of the shows that he wanted to make was the story of his safari in Africa. And so they decided to make a film about the safaris. And, you know, the job was offered to me. And I took it only because I was very curious to find so out. So he owned his own independent UHF station? No, he, he owned time. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, he had, he, had a, he had a, I think it was an hour that he, that Whammo could do with whatever they liked. Ah, I once. See. And so uh, it made But no if sense. you have your own station in L.A., yes. it's equivalent to having a huge market compared to oh. other places in the in the country well that's 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 true if you have uh, if you have uh, the agree the arrangements to do that if you if that uh, this was not a network this was not there were only three networks those years it was ABC CBS and yep, NBC yep. this was a local station so it wasn't connected to a network but uh, you know you could sell your product elsewhere to other independent stations which maybe the station would have done. I'm not sure what the thinking was. Syndication, the term, the I point think. Was that they wanted this movie made, and I only took the job because I was curious as to what drove three grown-up guys who had pots and pots and lots and lots of money. Where was the fun in killing wild animals? It didn't never made any sense to me. I'm not a hunter, and I will, you know, it made no sense at all. Which is why I took the job. I wanted to find out why they did this. So, you know, I had a camera and I got an assistant and, you know, took, took, took the job. And I met these guys in, in Mozambique and uh, we went into the bush and there we are 
you know, and they they shooting wild animals. So they've got a license to kill a certain number of various kinds of wild animals. Mm. One of them had the a license to shoot an elephant as well as other critters. And you know, I just wanted to find out, you know, for myself what this was all about. And the, the best way of doing it is to be part of a very well-funded safari. So were had, you were you going to be the director, the guy yeah. who actually had... I'm the, director, I'm the director cameraman. It's like being... So, so you will have final cut and you could tell that side of the story? I wasn't going to have final cut. I was going to turn the film over to them. Oh. And, and they had an editor in L.A. who worked for that station who was going to cut the film. Oh. Oh. Uh, I would do the coverage in Africa, you know, um, basically like a, what, a, what a newsreel cameraman does Got today. It. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so I took the job, and um, it was it was it was it was brutal because I really did not like what was going on. But you know, work is work, and you want when you know what you 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 do what you have to do. Um, and the one particular guy uh, who was the stockbroker from LA. It, one the day came for him to shoot his elephant. It was the, his his turn, and so the the two white hunters who ran this expedition, this safari, with a bunch of uh, black assistants, um, as well as people who you know find the spur in 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 the in the grass, tracking 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 the 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 animals and picking up the carcasses and you know putting them in trucks. I mean, there was a, it was a huge. Uh, um, Affair. The whole thing was extremely well funded with lots of people. So um, we get to a particular herd of elephants, and the white hunter singles out an old male bull in the herd, and he says to this guy whose turn it is to shoot the elephant, "That's the one you aim for. Don't miss. Try and you know hit him right between the eyes, uh, so that you get it over with as quickly as you can. If you injure him." It's not good news. You may mm. charge. You may charge. You know. Anyway, so I set up my shot in such a way that I'm standing right behind this hunter, and in the distance is the herd of elephants, and there's the bull elephant over there in my frame, and he aims, and I'm right behind him with my camera filming him, and it's a heavy film camera. Those were days of film, and then my assistant was walking around carrying a huge battery. To power the camera, you know, it was a big deal those days when you shot on film out on on location. It wasn't easy. So anyway, he sh he he aims and he fires and he misses, and the herd went wild. They just went stampeding in every direction, except for one female. She stood rock still in the middle of this. When the dust settled, we could see her standing there. And why was she there? She had a baby next to her. She had a calf. A okay. No one had seen that. And all she did was to stare at this guy in front of me with his with his gun. She knew that he was the one who fired. And she decided, you know, her calf might have been in trouble, could have been in danger, and she decided to charge. And so she starts to run towards him, charging. Mm. Now, I'm behind him. He's in front of me. And here is this elephant Great shot, Lou, um, you know, Lionel. But uh, guess what? He runs out of frame, and all I'm hearing is behind me the white hunter saying, run, 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 <laughs> to me. I couldn't move. I was frozen to the spot. First of all, the camera's heavy. The guy standing me with a battery, you know, next door to me, we couldn't move. Besides, I was terrified. 
And all I have in my viewfinder is this elephant getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and coming straight for me. She was actually aiming at him, but he ran away. And so she couldn't stop herself. You know, she was going at such a speed, at such a whack, and she was running straight towards my camera. And at the very last minute, she might have been about maybe eight or ten feet away from me. Over my shoulder, I heard BAM! And uh, the white hunter, the leader of the expedition, shot her right between the eyes and she dropped. Hmm. But if he hadn't done that, she would have come straight into me and killed me. And that night, we were all sitting back at, you know, main base uh, on the banks of this beautiful river. Martinis were flowing and everybody was talking about the events of the day. And I went to sit on my own on the side, you know, just swirling my glass, thinking I could have died today. I could have been killed by an elephant. I could have been killed by a great lumbering beast running towards me and suddenly, my God, I thought, that's what we saw. <laughs> she ah. said, you, you will almost die from a great beast in the bush as part of your work. She foresaw that. This woman, wow. this shaman, back in Africa. Years in before. Years, years and years before. Years before. Right, okay, what? hold it there. We're no. at the bottom of the hour. Perfect timing, Lionel. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, and we're discussing predictions, prophecies, the hyperdimensional internet. How did this little old woman in the middle of nowhere in Rhodesia look through time, look down the corridors of Lionel's future life and career, and foresee specific events that would occur? I mean, how does any of this occur? How does life occur? You're on the other side of midnight. When we get back to Lionel, we're going to ask some more questions. And I bet he's going to have some more interesting war stories. A bigger war. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Sunday night, almost Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and you're listening to a really fascinating conversation with Lionel Friedberg, who is a award-winning producer, filmmaker, documentarian, uh, raconteur, explorer of his own... I, 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 I term it a hyper-dimensional journey because... What he's just been telling us is someone that he talked to at that formative part of his life when he was deciding where to go after the uh, Rhodesians, the, the black Africans in Rhodesia decided in their independent country, separate from England, that they were going to uh, go with their own nationalist uh, uh, personnel and uh, got rid of all the whites working for the television station there where he had kind of learned a trade and he was looking for what to do next. So his friend took him through a kind of interesting knowing somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody route to an African shaman, a little old lady who looked down through time and decades later he would realize she knew exactly what was going to happen in his life because he was living it, and he was connecting the dots. I'm just surprised, Lionel, that you would have the presence of mind to relate these incidents back to her forecasts. Well, it was impossible to not do, uh, do anything other than that, Richard, because she was so profoundly uh, impactful and left such an impression on my mind that, of course, you put them aside. But, you know... Uh, I recall things with great uh, vivid detail, always. Uh, it's one of the, my blessings that I have. And, um, you know, as these events happened, they, they came back to me instantly. I just recalled precisely, that, you know, that this is what that woman told me. She described all these things. And I was going to take you to the one of the other uh, really interesting stories about one of her predictions uh, was, you know, that I would meet a man who knew the most evil person who ever lived. And I, it yeah, never, I'm kind of wondering whether he may have some competition recently, but uh, go well, on. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, but let's put that um, 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 aside for a moment because I forgot about it for a long, long time. Now, uh, in 1984, I was, or I think it was 1983, actually, I was doing a series of, I had, uh, um, I was back in South Africa, and I was doing a series of aviation films, and I was doing a history of one of the great international uh, airlines of the world, which was South African Airways. Uh, COVID wiped them out. I mean, basically, grounded, ah. and it's, it's, but it was one of the first major airlines to connect the African continent with the rest of the world. It linked South Africa with every major continent all over the world. And uh, it had a wonderful story, and it had uh, lots of lots of really interesting aspects 
to its history. So, in oh, the 19- wait, 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 wait! That's the picture I wanted for your bio of you sitting in the cockpit, and it was That's- such low resolution that I couldn't yeah. use it, and I didn't have time to call Gavin and say, "Can you get me that oh, version?" But that oh. was my instinct to go with that picture. Oh, well, you should have done that because, you know, first of all, I love aviation and I've done a lot of uh, films of aviation. I've done a lot of uh, work with Boeing as well up in Seattle. Um, but well, that, wait, did, did South African Airways fly comets? They, they did. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. Um, in fact, that's another book that I wrote, which is, <laughs> which is all about that. That's absolutely fascinating. But let you me realize, tell you- Lionel, we're not going to get through 120 million <laughs> of your life tonight. So I'm well, going to have to invite you back. Because I'd love that. I would absolutely love that. But let me speed up a little bit and tell no, you no, this. No, 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 no. Take, take our time because the three because, dimensionality of this is yeah. very important. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a wild story. So let me tell you this. So I'm doing this film about the history of South African Airways, and in, in 1934, when the airline was formed, they ordered three. Uh, no, more than three. I think they ordered a total of about seven. Um, brand new aircraft from a manufacturer in Germany, from the Junkers company. They are no longer making commercial airliners, but uh, at that time they did. And these were some of the first all-metal airliners ever made. Uh, I think they actually made the first... Yeah, didn't didn't Hitler or Goering convert them to bombers eventually during Uh, the war? All all of those. Uh, The Junkers were very, very... Uh, um, um, uh, popular as bombers, as were Henkels and so on. But 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 the Junkers started its life as being, uh, you know, commercial airliners. And uh, the, the the Junkers, the Ju fifty two, what they what they called the U in German, the Ju fifty two, came out as an all metal airliner. I think even before the the, the Ford trimotor. The Ford trimotor, yeah, yeah. I think it was just before that. Uh, and they were very reliable, and they were wonderful aircraft. So, you know, South Africa has ordered a bunch of them. Now, so how do you get airplanes to go all the way from the factory? And I think the factory was in Bremen in those days. How do you go from there all the way down to Johannesburg in South Africa? Because you've got the whole of Africa in the way. Now, remember, there are no alternative airports to land at in case you've got technical problems. There are no uh, meteorological services along the way. There's nothing. It was primitive. It was very, very difficult and dangerous stuff. And and these were not seaplanes. These were land aircraft. Land planes, exactly. So where do you come down? In the boondocks, in the middle of the jungle? You know, where do you land if you've got a problem? So anyway, um, the story about fl- that, that, that flight of some of those first airliners or their delivery flights were fascinating. And while we were doing our research, we found out that one of the pilots who flew as a delivery flight pilot, one of those planes was still alive. Oh, and- like 89 years old, retired in a small town not too far from Munich in Bavaria. And so I said, we got to put him on the show. we got to do an interview <laughs> with the guy. He's got to tell me about that thing. So it was arranged. Now, this is before East and West Germany got together again. The Berlin Wall had not yet fallen. Uh, you know, Reagan had not yet been to Germany. And none of that had happened yet. So East Germany and West Germany were still separated. And the, the West German uh, uh, government was still based in Bonn, not in Berlin as it is now. Right. So there was a guy from the foreign office in, in Bonn. I, I called him, you know, the man from Bonn. Uh, <laughs> he arranged for us, he facilitated the interview with this guy. 
and he was very good. I mean, he was absolutely marvelous. Uh, the foreign office were really very helpful about that. And one of the one of the requests was you can interview this guy. We'll 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 you know we'll tell him that you're coming, and you know we'll put him at your disposal. But don't talk about the war. Fine, we're not going to talk about the war. So that's not what the interview is about. Anyway, I eventually end up in Frankfurt with my crew, and we've got two uh, little minivans and uh, a bunch of photographers and people from the publicity office and the PR department and whatever else, plus this guy from Bonn, the man from Bonn, uh, and uh, a bunch of other aviation. Sounds like a 007 film. <laughs> it's exactly that. And now we're taking the autobahn, and those autobahns are just magnificent. I mean, no speed yeah. limit. You just you the know. one, one, one good thing Hitler ever did. Yeah, you just sail down those autobahns, no speed limit. So we're going from Frankfurt down to Munich to go and meet this man, interview him the next day. And that night, we the, the crew and all the photographers and you know the PR people, whatever, we stayed at a very, very nice little hotel on the banks of this lake, which is near where this man is retired. And the man from Bonn, uh, after dinner, he comes to me and he says, let's have a drink. I said, sure. And so he orders a good bottle of Rhine wine. And, you know, he and I were rapping, rapping away about all kinds of stuff and talking about aviation and whatever else. And then another bottle of wine is ordered at the <laughs> night, getting longer and longer. And we both getting a little bit tipsy there. It was actually, you know, pretty good. Mm. So right about 11 o'clock at night, he says to me, he leans forward. And in perfect English, he says to me, how much do you really know, you know, about uh, Flugkapitän Hans Bar, which is the, the name of this man that we're going to interview? So I said, well, you know, I, I, all I'm interested in is, you know, the, the, that delivery flight back in 1936. Why? What is there to know? He said, well, you know, that flight was before the war. And I said, yeah, I'm sure. So why? You you mean, obviously, he must have flown for the Luftwaffe during the war? That's fine. I'm mm -hmm. not, that's not the story I'm interested in. I'm interested in the delivery flight story in Africa in 1934. You're really walking into this one. <laughs> and he says, yeah, this is true. He says, but... What do you really know about his background? <laughs> so he's edging me, you know, and we both had a lot of wine to drink. So I don't think he would have gone there were it not for the fact that the wine was talking more than he was. Right, right. But eventually he says to me, he, he, he beckons me to come forward. He's leading, you know, faced, we were like three inches away from one another. It's a, it's a movie scene. It's straight out of a movie scene. He's, and and he's, he says to me, do you realize, Mr. Friedberg, that Hans Bauer, was the personal pilot of Adolf Hitler. Well, I sobered up instantly. Oh, my God. You talk about falling into clover. You know, when he told that to me, I thought, how am I going to deal with this interview tomorrow? Um, I am going to interview Adolf Hitler's personal pilot. You have got to be kidding me. Anyway, the next morning arrived. I'm as stone-cold sober as can be. The crew and I, we all go to this man's house, and we are welcomed into his house by... This was his third wife, apparently. She was sweet and charming, spoke only German. And eventually he arrived, this, this guy. And um, he spoke no English at all, only, only German. Anyway, we set up the, uh, the interview situation in his living room. We set up the lights, you know, the, hide the cables and whatever, get them get everything ready 
and the man from Bonn is going to be my interpreter. I'm going to ask the questions. He will translate to German and the guy will answer, you know, and we'll, we'll get it all on camera. And it was going to be an interesting interview. But when I shook his hand, I thought, I, you know, I felt a little bit uncomfortable and I wasn't quite sure why because uh, I was more concentrating on the, the interview to come. You know, I was trying to concentrate on the work at hand. Anyway, we do the interview. He's great. He gives me a really good interview, maybe 10, 12 minutes worth of really good stuff, all in German. And we'll, we, we will, you know, we'll, we'll, we, we'll, the plan was to subtitle that later in post-production. And, uh, and he tells me these adventures that they had flying down Africa and all the rest of it. And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. And then the interview is done. And I said to him, Danke schön, thank you very much. And, you know, we're finished. He gets up from his chair. And he says to me in German, he says, come with me, come and submit me. And he takes me uh, to the edge of the living room where there's a little alcove next to the bathroom down there. And he points to a photograph up on the wall. And in this photograph are one of these airplanes that we've been talking about in the interview. And he says, das ist, you know, that's a JU-52. And in the photograph, standing in front of the photograph is him in his pilot's uh, uniform and his cap. And on the cap is the skull and crossbones to show that he was a member of the SS. Mm -hmm. Next to him is standing his Führer, Adolf Hitler. Oh, my. And he points to himself and he says, this is me. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he was. then he points to, the, to Hitler next to him. And he, he was about to tell me in German, you know, who he was. And I said, ich weiß. I just said, I know, you know. And he said, I got, and he stared at me for a moment. And he asked me in German, do you want to know more? Well, mm. I couldn't answer. <laughs> I said, yeah, bitte, please. So he calls out his, to his wife. He says, you know, Schatzi, schnapps, bring the drinks. And she brings out some really good German alcohol. The crew sits down. He and I sit down on the couch in his living room. And she, the wife, brings out all these big leather-bound photograph albums. And he starts... So he had done this before? I don't know, but he kept these albums. It, it sounds it, like, a, like a production. It sounds like he was... It, he had kept these... I don't think he'd done this before. I know that he had written his autobiography. I don't know if he'd ever done this. He might have, maybe on German television. I don't know. Um, but we go through these photograph albums for the next hour and a half or maybe two hours, and it's like an inner history of the inner sanctums of the Third Reich. Oh, my. Because all of them are there. Himmler, Goering, you name them. They're all there. And so is he. But and you're not the, getting this on film. No, no, I'm not getting because I wouldn't have done it anyway. But I, I said I wasn't going to ask about the war, and that wasn't my mission. But I'm being given privy to this man's life and his life with Adolf Hitler. Apparently, he and Adolf Hitler were buddies from way back. When he married his first wife, Adolf Hitler gave him his wedding party. Oh, in my. In Hitler's personal apartment in Munich. That's how tight these two men were. That's how well they knew one another. And, you know, Hitler trusted nobody. He always yeah. felt, you know, that his life was in danger. And of course it was. For obvious there, reasons, yes. <clears throat> plots and plans, you know, to do away with him and kill him and murder him and whatever else. And there were attempts, as we all know now. Uh, he confided in very, very few people, except this guy was his confidant. He told him everything. 
he would tell him everything that was in his heart and what his dreams were, what his intentions were, what his hopes were, what his fears were. He told this guy everything. And all this man kept telling me is about you know, this relationship they had with, with, with Hitler and how wonderful Hitler was to him and his family and what this, and this, this tight relationship that he had. And he, there was no remorse or, uh, you know, he wasn't in any way reticent to, 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 to tell me things. And I wasn't probing. He was basically offering this up to me. And I felt somehow privileged that he was doing Did this. you ever figure out why? I've what was no motivating idea. him? I have no idea. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good when I'm around people and when I'm interviewing people. I get their trust pretty quickly. I, I, I have a knack. I'm not giving myself a pat on the back here, but I make people feel at home pretty quickly. And I think this man trusted me. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe because I was a foreigner. Maybe because my name, my last name, is actually of German origin. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe you know, in somewhere in his past, he had know. an African shaman who said, <laughs> someday you'll meet a man and you will tell. I mean, come on. Why not? Who knows? I don't know. You know. So anyway, this happens, and you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the afternoon, you know, I said to the crew, a couple of guys, you know, let's, uh, let's get get the cables up, put all the gear away, get the tripods packed away, get get the lights broken down, put them all back in the van, and we left. We must have left about six o'clock. Um, so this driving. whole conversation took place in German, which you understood. Did your crew? No, no, he. I didn't understand because the, the man from Bonn sidled up and he was he was explaining. Oh, he was he was your uh, your interpreter. Yeah, he, he was my interpreter. Um, he was mortified, horrified that this man was offering up all this information, but he was translating because you know he was just being polite. Well, there was a huge backlash. I mean, what is it? It's still illegal to do certain things about the Third Reich in, in Germany. No, I don't think you're allowed to display swastikas and you're not allowed to, you know, do things like that. But you can certainly talk about it. And, you know, he wasn't a war criminal. But you know what? He was with Hitler in the bunker the night the night that Hitler supposedly took his life. He tells me the story that he was in the bunker. You it's say all... supposedly, Lionel. What do you know? No, we are not absolutely 101% sure that that the way the story has come down to us is the way it happened. I've heard so many alternative, and a lot of, a lot of them are conspiracy theories. Yeah, whatever. yeah I've seen the same ones. I don't know. But, I mean, I've heard so many stories about Hitler actually did manage to get to South America, and that he didn't commit suicide. And if, if he did, who would have flown him there? Well, that's right. So... Um, he says that, you know, he's in the bunker with Hitler that night, and Hitler actually went, he, Hitler used to travel with a, there was a favorite painting that he had, and he went up to the wall, and he, with, his, with an, a penknife, he cut the painting out, and he gave it to Bar, and he said, this is for you to remember me by. Tonight, I am going to take my life. The war is over. We have no hope. The, the third Reich is finished. Get out of here. Leave. And this man, he took this painting, and uh, stuck it in a, in a, in a uh, I don't know, I guess a backpack or whatever, and he left the bunker. But along the way, the Russians were now invading Berlin. Right. That, and the Russian troops uh, saw him running through the streets and captured him. And he became a prisoner of war of the Russians. He was actually incarcerated for over 15 years. And apparently he had a miserable time under the Russians because they felt 
that he knew that Hitler did not commit suicide and that Hitler was still somewhere in the world on the run or hiding. And they wanted to find out from him where he was. But he, he, he assured me that he didn't know. And in his autobiography, which he gave me a copy of, it's in German, but it's now been translated into English, uh, you know, um, he says that as far as he's concerned, Hitler did commit suicide. But I, I, between you and I now speaking in retrospect, I don't know whether that really is what happened, but that's what he told me. Hmm. So he was... Uh, hang on, hang on, question. What happened to the painting? Uh, the the Russians took the took the painting. They uh, you know completely uh, took everything away that he had on him. So it's hanging in Putin's den. I've no idea. I mean, I you know who knows whatever happened to that. You know, Do we some... know what the painting was? Yeah, yeah. He'd uh, in fact uh, in I've written a book about uh, about that. It's called the Flying Springbok, and in there I tell that story in detail. I tell part of that story, by the way, in Forever in My Veins, the book that we're talking about tonight, purely because. This old lady had foreseen this event, and here's where I'm where I'm going to with it. At the end of the day, you know, we get into our two vans and we're driving away, and I look back through the rear window of the van, and there's this little old man standing outside his house with his wife, waving at us as though he's waving goodbye to his grandchildren, you know? And it suddenly hit me, I said, I, I suddenly thought, you have just shaken hands with a man, that's one degree of separation from Adolf Hitler. Oh, That's how close you were to Adolf Hitler. That man shook Adolf Hitler's hand probably a thousand times, yeah. and you shook his hand now. You touched the essence of Hitler. It's probably still on his hand, you know? Wow. I, I, that's what I've sort of thought. And I thought, you have just been in close contact with a man who knew the most evil man who ever lived, and my God, it suddenly hit me again. That's what that woman told me in a mud hut in Africa years before. Amazing, amazing. It is amazing. It's absolutely extraordinary. So, you know, uh, what can I tell you? You know, go figure. Um, I think the sort of, you know, takeaway lesson of this whole shaman thing is there's more, there's more to the way the world works than we know. How do these people know the stuff. How did that little old lady know what she did? And, you know, part of my story in this book is that I was uh, diagnosed with a pretty serious kidney disease, an autoimmune disorder uh, in 1996. I was working on uh, ancient mysteries with Leonard Nim Nimoy uh, at, in L.A. at the time. And, oh, that's right. You knew Leonard. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, and it was during the making of that series uh, – Histories, mysteries, ancient mysteries, the mysteries of the Bible. You know, I was supervising uh, writer on on all of those shows, and um, and uh, and 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 during the middle of all of this, suddenly I'm, I get di diagnosed with this autoimmune disorder. And I'm told my kidneys are failing. You know, and I thought, shoot, what I'm going to do about this? So, I I have a friend who lives up the road from L.A. In, in, in Santa Barbara, which is where Prince Harry and Meghan now live. Right. Um, and he is a surgeon. And he's also from South Africa. He's the same age as me. We've been friends for years. Um, we actually met uh, a long, long time ago when I, when, I, when, I first, when I first came to live in L.A. in 1985 when I emigrated there with my family. I met him, this guy, 
Dave Coombs is his name, because he was doing research in 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 Africa with the uh, with the, um, the 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 Sun Bushman people in the Kalahari Desert. Uh, he wanted to find out about their trance dances. You know, this is a surgeon. He was interested in in how these people were able to heal themselves. And he also wanted to know how the shamans of South Africa could cure illnesses and diseases, you know, by snipping leaves and barks and stuff off plants and concocting them into medications and giving them to patients, which helped. It made people heal. And he wanted to know how that works. So he was studying the shamanic ways. And and, and he, he came to me, not because of those reasons, but because on one of his trips to, to Botswana, meeting the Sun Bushman people, he had a very interesting experience with the UFO. And he knew that I was absolutely fascinated and intrigued by UFOs, as I have been for, for decades. And he came to show me a video that he actually shot uh, in, in an encampment where he was with the Sun Bushman people. These are the last of the Stone Age people, by the way. They're nomadic people. They wear virtually nothing. They trek from place to place. They make their home nowhere. They don't have any livestock. They live off the land. They live off the wildlife. And, you know, at night they light a fire and they do a trance dance around it. They go into these extraordinary states of semi-consciousness where they go into another realm and they can foresee the next day where the wildlife will be, where the animals will be, which is where they go and hunt, because it's foretold to them in these visions that they have. Mm. He was intrigued by all of this. And he's got, he, he showed me this video that he took one particular night where he's, photog- he's, got a, he's, he's t- 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 shooting these guys going around the fire in this trance dance and the drums are going, you know, it's, it's otherworldly. Is it video or film? Video. He had a video camera. This time we talk about the eighties now. Oh, okay. Okay. He's got video, and then suddenly he he says he he, he the, the camera goes up into these uh, pans up from the from from the flames and the dance into the sky and 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 looks up above us and there is this shining object, and he says this is what I wanted to show you and I said so, what is that and he says to me well I asked them and I said what is this it's it's a UFO that was hovering above their encampment. And he said, the, the, the chief of the tribe said, oh, don't worry about that. Those are just those others from the other world. They come here all the time. Don't pay any attention to them. Just forget about it. Hmm. <laughs> that casually. So he wanted to show me this videotape about that, which is why where I met him. Uh, so let's Well, without the- digressing too much, was the object large on the, on the, on the, on the video or small? It was very difficult to see because, listen, he's an amateur and, you know, it's a cheap video camera. You couldn't see too much. Oh, but okay. there was the silvery, shining disc-like object. I can tell you about another UFO story later on if you want, uh, which I filmed in Canada on a different occasion. But, you know, he says, he said, you know, this, they just they just brushed it aside because, you know, he said, he said that they told him, uh, oh, no, no, these are the people they come, these are the visitors from the other world. They come here all the time. Uh, so don't worry about that. Now, I'm, so I, I, I cemented a very good friendship with a guy. And so when I got this kidney disease, I called him up and I said, Dave, you know, I've been diagnosed with this damn, you know, uh, autoimmune kidney disorder. What do you think I should do about it? And he said, oh, 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 see, you're too darn interesting. We're about to run out of runway here. I'll pick up when you come back. Exactly, exactly. I have another surprise for you. I think you might enjoy this. 
You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Lionel Freeberg, and we're having a tour de force journey through his hyperdimensional life. And here is Max Steiner and the soundtrack to King Kong. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. The witching hour here in the Land of Enchantment. It is uh, after midnight now, so it's Sunday night, Monday morning here. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, and earlier in the show we were discussing his uh, affection and attraction to the incredible seminal soundtracks of Max Steiner, who did so many of those incredible classic movies in the 30s and 40s. and this is uh, the soundtrack from Max Steiner's uh, uh, prolific uh, repertoire for King Kong, which of course was this amazing stop-motion animation Ray Harryhausen uh, production of the giant ape that is taken to New York and winds up with Fay Ray clinging to the top of the Empire State Building, the radio mast as the biplanes are whizzing by trying to uh, shoo him down or to get rid of him or to kill him and anyway it's uh, this is dedicated music written by Steiner to the film and we talked about how mood music for films kind of came of age 
with Steiner. I mean, listen. Anyway, Lionel, speaking of mood music, you were in the middle of this gripping story of how you discovered that you had basically a life-threatening disease. This was now what, about mid-80s? No, this was 1996. 96, uh, okay. Yeah. By the way, top marks for your choice of cues from that film. The the, the pieces you played at the end of the break was uh, uh, the arrival at Skull Island, by the way. You could hear the ship arriving in the mist. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the, the ship just arrives there gliding out of this misty morning on the ocean and then the second piece you played of course was uh, was where we first see Kong and your your piece just before the break was where uh, Kong is uh, storming the, uh, the the tribal group of his fey rays tied up and, and he's about to meet her great stuff I mean you know it's just amazing it's uh, it's it's a score that is so astonishing and uh, Steiner was so nailed it uh, when he wrote that. And, of course, it brought the house down. It's wonderful. And, of course, it's, it's an amazing piece of, of Americana, that film. It's, it's marvelous. As, as, a, as, a, as a sci-fi type uh, horror, horror movie, it's, 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 it's remarkable for 1933, what those guys did, you know, with very little resources. It's incredible. So thank you for doing that. And I'm, I, I, I share your honor for that man's work. You know, he's the granddaddy and the people who followed, you know, are the John Williamses of the world. But Max Steiner did it first. Yep. Anyway, um, so, so you're talking- turning to your friend who is this uh, uh, surgeon in Santa Barbara who obviously has a uh, kind of walk on the wild side bent. He's looking outside the box. And he says to you when you say, I may be about to die from this thing. Yeah, exactly. And he says to me, well, I'll tell you something. He says, I am going back to Africa to go and study the the shamans and how how they use their uh, medicinal herbs and stuff for for, uh, curing their patients. I am going out there and I'm studying the ways of the shaman. Why don't you come with me and you can make a documentary about all of that. I'm sure you'll find it very interesting. And while we're out there, you can meet some of these guys. Maybe they can find a cure. And I said to him, you are kidding me. You are a surgeon and you're telling me that I've got to go to Africa with you and see if I can find a cure for, at a, with a witch doctor. <laughs> when the best of L.A. Hollywood medicine <laughs> Can't and touch he says it. to me, in all seriousness, he says, that's exactly what I'm saying to you. Wow. And I said, you're on. So I went with him. I made a documentary about Well, no, wait, wait. You had a background that when you were conversing with someone of this ilk decades yeah. earlier, mm-hmm. all of these predictions. So you had a database that even though it was wild and far out and beyond the edge of the paper – Maybe, I mean, when people are dying, they'll do almost anything not to die. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this woman predicted my illness. She this this this. Oh, she did. One of the things that she told me. Yeah, I talk about it in the book. I said one of the things that she said is that one day I'm going to have an illness that is going to be life threatening. And the only and these are her words. Her words were. The only way you will find a cure, she says to David, that's the guy I'm with in her mud hut, 
in her, in the Bemba language. She says, he will one day get an illness, and the and the only way he will find a cure is if he goes back to where he came from. Oh Note the words she uses. Now, did so, you remember that, like the other instances when you're talking to your surgeon friend? How could I possibly forget that? Okay, okay, just asking. I, I, I didn't, I couldn't possibly forget. One day you will have an illness that'll it make him, you know, he'll almost die. And the only way he will find a cure. So you've got go. a, you've got a database and a trend curve. So it's like a, a head warp factor one. Yeah, you know, I want to tell you, yeah, but also I write stuff down all the time. You know, um, it's one of the things you learn as a filmmaker is leave nothing to chance. Write it down. Have something to refer back to, and that's I've done that all my life. Every every single film I've ever made, I make copious notes of what happened during the day, who did what, who was who, you know, names of people, locations, everything. So that if I'm writing a narration or I'm I'm putting the film together, I need to be able to refer back to that. You get used to that. It's just part of my being, part of who I am. So. You know, maybe that's just the way my mind works. My my son is very much like that. My uh, my younger son is pretty much the same as that. Anyway, so I went back to South Africa with him many, many years after I'd left the country. And uh, I go and meet all of these shamans that he's studying with. And they all, the most extraordinary thing was this, is that when they throw the bones to try and identify what was wrong with me. They all said, ah, it's an organ and it's endangering your life. So one of the most important people that my friend Dave Cumes was studying with was in a country called Eswatini. Eswatini used to be called Swaziland. Oh. Swaziland is a mountain kingdom sandwiched in between South Africa and Mozambique. It's beautiful glorious place, tall, tall mountains. It's still a kingdom. It still has a king today. King Swatini uh, is his name. And uh, one of his shamans, his teachers, lived there. And so we went to stay with him, you know. And um, I go there, and the guy, he says, he says, yeah, let's, let's throw the bones. Let's see if we can see, if we can find out anything about what's going on with you. He throws the bones, and he said, you are your illness is so serious that even I cannot help you. We need to find you a special man, a special uh, shaman. A specialty shaman. This sounds like something out of Harvard. Oh, we need a specialty guy on this. It is. You can, we got to find you a shaman who is schooled and skilled in certain techniques to help rid you of this illness. Wow. Because what you need is a femba. And I said, a what? He said, you need a femba. And Dave, my friend, looks at me and he says, oh, my God. And I said, why? He says, basically, that means an exorcism. Oh. <laughs> you oh. Know, okay. You, you know, have just opened up, Lionel. You've just opened up a huge can of worms. Right. So, well, and I'm Because I actually have scientific Western evidence of yes. possession. Oh, for sure. No question. Oh, absolutely it happens. Well, oh, not for most people. Don't doubt that for a moment. Of course it can happen. Oh, I've seen it in, in tribal areas. You know, in the 1970s, I did a series with uh, um, all the major tribes of Southern Africa called The Tribal Identity. I'm in the process of, uh, of having it posted on YouTube now. And I will add that link to my website. 
so people can actually look at those shows. Uh, but while I was making those in the 1970s, I uh, met people who were possessed by, you know, by evil entities, dark, dark entities. And I saw two people who were actually cured of that, who had this, this whatever it was, expunged, removed, you know, chased away. This may sound far afield, but I don't think it is. Because mm-hmm. I've been trying to find an irrational 3D universe, uh, kind of a rationale for why Putin is doing what he's doing. I think you're, you're coming close to the... And thing. I'm looking at the same model you are, because again, I've got Western-style evidence that I will share with you off the yeah. air, because okay. we're obviously going to have some extended conversations. <clears throat> yeah. And I think at this particular time in yeah. terrestrial planetary history... Yes. He has been singled out to do some awful things, but yes. he's not. I mean, the people that have known him <clears throat> for decades, like the French ambassador and uh, someone yeah. else, they've said right. he's not the same guy he used to be. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Now, it may not. It, we can talk about this later, but it may be even worse than possession. And we can talk about that in privacy later on. Okay. So these guys say to you, we need the specialist because you so, have been possessed. So I'm told that I need this, this, this FEMBA procedure done, uh, which is basically means exorcism in Swazi, in the Swazi language. And I eventually meet this man who is going to do the FEMBA on me at a trading store. Uh, and we, we, we negotiate a price, how much I have to pay. For that, it wasn't much money, you know. Uh, I meet this man, a little, little, small, short little guy, meek, mild, very <clears> polite, <throat> uh, not, not, didn't speak terribly good English, a Swazi <laughs> man, and he was, uh, he was a sweetheart, and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. he said, oh, I can, I can help you. Turns out I to can... be the brother of the gal there in Rudy. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> And, you know, and uh, so we, and a, a time is arranged for us to go to his uh, his village, his compound, up, hey, way up in the mountains. Okay. And um, so comes the day of the race and we go there. So I'm going in a, in a Land Rover with, the, there, I think there were four or five of us. There's my friend Dave and there's an, a, a, another another guy and, and a guide. And uh, Were you going to film this? No, no, absolutely okay. not. Okay. This was this was this was for me to have my femba, my my cure, my exorcism. And we arrive, we go drive for hours and hours and hours up into these mountains. And I'm in the virtually no roads, in, just but the scenery was gorgeous. And at the end of the day, we get to this compound where this guy lives, and he's got a series of huts. And there's one ro- very large round hut with a big thatched roof. And uh, apparently that's where the ceremony was going to take place. So I go there, and when I go inside, I'm welcomed by two of his helpers. I didn't – he wasn't there, but two of his helpers. I, I think they were maybe his sons, young guys. They were probably, you know, like 19, 20 years old, and they welcome me in perfect English, and they welcome me into this big round hut, and there's a fire in the middle of the hut burning in a little hearth, and uh, sitting around on, against the wall of this hut are a bunch of women beating drums. Non-stop. And singing. Straight out of a movie. Straight out of Indiana Jones. <laughs> and um, I'm told to sit next to the fire in the middle of this hut on my own. 
And I'm sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and, and nothing is happening, you know. In front of me, there's a doorway. Behind me is the doorway where we came in. And around us are these women trilling and drumming. A lot of them had little babies uh, on their backs. Some of them were breastfeeding. Um, we're talking about rural people, you know. And um, I was welcomed. I, it's like, you know, nothing could seem more ordinary than me sitting in the middle of a grass hat next to a fire with women beating drums. Seemed like, you know, them, it was, that, that's how things are. And suddenly there's a scream. And in this doorway in front of me, suddenly appears that guy that I met at the trading store. But now, he's not wearing Western clothing. He's got his grass skirt on, he's got anklets on, he's got his beads on, and his eyes are as red as firelight. It's as though he's possessed by something. He arrives there and he screams, ah! and the drumming stops. And there's absolute silence in this, in, this, in this hut. And he goes down onto all fours as though he has taken on the essence of a wild animal. And as I asked Dave, my friend afterwards, I said, it, it appeared to me that as though he'd become a hyena, the way he was walking with a hunched back. Hmm. Walking on all fours towards me and grunting in a... It was... I cannot tell you how terrified I was. And he came to me and he started to smell me all the way from my feet, all the way up my legs. And when he got to the area where my kidneys were, he started to heave as though he wanted to belch, as though he wanted to vomit. And he starts to, you know, it looks like he wanted to bring up and... These two young men that, that welcomed us when we arrived there, they now dressed in traditional costume as well. And they ran out and they came back with a, with a, with a big barrel and put it next to him. And he vomited this absolute ghastly. Oh, my God. Into the barrel. It's as though he sucked something. Hey, exactly. Out. Yeah. Exactly. And he goes and he comes up all the way to my head, smells my, my hair, my face. It was terrifying. And not a sound in this room. And then he goes down the right side of my body. And when he came to where my kidney was, he starts to heave again. And, he, you know, they bring the barrel and he vomits more of the slimy stuff into the barrel. And then he goes right down to, my, to my, my legs, back to my feet. And then he stood up. And in Swazi, I didn't understand any of it. It was all uh, explained to me later. He stands above me, towering above me, and he looks down at me. And he's not that meek, mild little man that I met at the trading store. Here was an, a, 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 a person. He's become a human being again. I could feel his power. I could feel radiating from this man an energy that something I'd never experienced before in my life. And he tells, he, this is what, what explained to me afterwards, what he was saying to me. He said, your grandfather on your father's side was here tonight. And guided him so that he knew what to do. Hmm. It was now removed from my body the bad stuff. Those are the words he uses. He's removed from my body the bad stuff because my grandfather showed him what to do. Told him what to do in the spirit world. And that's what he did. He vomited my this bad stuff into the barrels. And I, he said to me, you must always be grateful to your grandfather and to your ancestors because they helped me tonight to, to help you. 
and he says that I need a walking stick. And every time I go for a walk, I must take that walking stick with me and think about my grandfather and be grateful to my grandfather because he helped save my life that night. And so the, the night ended. It must have been about three o'clock in the morning. We get back in the Land Rover. I am stunned. I have no idea what to say. How are and you I'm, feeling physically? Just uh, as, as though it's it's almost as though you know when they when they give you the the, the pre med before they give you an anesthetic when you go in for some kind of surgery mm -hmm. you're sort of very lightheaded you're floating mm. it was kind of like that but I felt as though some kind of cathartic process had happened. so you felt the transformation I felt that something had had happened now do I feel that bad energy that illness had been removed from my body. I'm not sure if it was that, but I certainly felt something had happened to my physical being. And we, we, we didn't speak very much on the way back to where we were staying with, uh, you know, the guys, the village where we were living. Could took another hour and a half, two hours on these roads, these terrible dirt roads in the middle of the night in these, in these mountains. And when we got back, you know, I was just, I, I just collapsed into my, into my uh, uh, um, um, sleeping bag and woke up in the, the next morning. I was feeling um, very lightheaded. And the guy who actually introduced me to the man who did this procedure, the FEMBA, he, he came to wake me up and he said, uh, and now he wasn't there that night. And there are no phones, by the way. <laughs> and there are no cell phones where we were at that place at all. But he comes and wakes me up the next day and he says, he, 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 he says he knew exactly what happened that night. He said, yeah, so the cleansing took place. Your grandfather helped him and now you need a walking stick. And then he takes me into his hut and now get this, Richard, and I kid you not, I'm not making any of this up. He takes me into his hut and he sits me down and he reaches into the shadows and he said, two weeks ago, I carved this walking stick because I knew someone was coming who was going to need it. Hmm. And he hands it to me. And he said, you take that. Every time you go for a walk, think of your grandfather <laughs> and be grateful to your grandfather because it was your grandfather who guided that man last night. First of all, how did he know what happened the night before? How did he even know that? And hmm. never mind, how did he know to carve the walking stick? I mean, you know, go figure it out. The, hy no the, the hyperdimensional internet. Come on. That's exactly right. That, that's, that's okay, I have a really kind of, it's not embarrassing, and if it is, you don't have to answer, obviously. Yeah. But how, how did you come to be in a vulnerable position where this entity could inhabit you and practically kill you? Well, I don't know whether it was an entity or whether it was just bad energy, and I do believe that you know, darkness prevails, and it can take many forms. It need not necessarily have been an entity. Be, this is not something that came out of the exorcist. This was not Linda Blair having some uh, devil removed from her system. That's not okay. what I experienced. It was negativity. It was darkness. It was a negative energy that was... But how did it take root? What was there in your life that allowed it in? Uh, to this day, I haven't figured it out. But, See, that to know, me is the most important question you should have asked. I, I have many theories. I have, but I have many theories. We and have I, time. What are they? And, 
I've, I've articulated this to a number of people, but um, go for it. Uh, it. It could be look. It could be a. Look, I believe you know. I believe we, we we don't come here once. We come here many times. I reincarnation is for me is absolutely as real as this computer is in front of me, and I think it it might be a karmic thing. It could be from a previous life, but uh, when I was a child. Um, as a kid living in this town, Kempton Park, that I was—I don't know if I was talking to you before the, the you started recording—but I lived in a small town to the east of Johannesburg. No, I did talk talk to you about this when I actually went down the road with my nanny. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's a little town where I and grew up. And you saw the police uh, stopping uh, yeah, the woman. And exactly. So when I was uh, a young kid of about you know seven, eight, nine, um, I was the leader of the pack, and I used to have a bunch of guys who used to follow me around and. We had there was a little house in this town that we believe a witch lived in that house, and uh, we used to would when we went past that house on our bicycle or whatever you know we just would go by very quickly. And one day I said to them, "Why don't we go and throw some stones at the house? You know, because mm. there's, there's a witch inside." And they said, "Yeah, yeah, let's do that." And um, I ran down a little narrow passageway between two buildings to get to an open field in order to get to this little old lady's house. I mean, she was probably a meek and mild little old lady who was minding her own business, doing nothing wrong. But, you know, as far as we kids were concerned, she was the witch of the town. And um, as I ran down this, this, this little alleyway, I... I stood in my. I, I was. I was uh, wearing short trousers, and I, I. I. And I stepped into a broken bottle, and severed an artery mm. in my uh, in my ankle. And uh, I honestly, if my if my friends had not carried me back to my parents, I probably would have bled to death. Anyway, the doctor came, patched me up, and uh, sewed it up, and some. Some Sangomas that I have spoken to said that was probably when this darkness entered your entered your entered you, because you had this you had this thought that you were going to terrorize this little old woman, and that dark energy was purposely put inside you when you stepped into that broken bottle. There was blood poisoning that went inside you and probably did it. Now was that uh, the cause of it? I have no idea. But to this day. None, are, and I have access to some of the best doctors and nephrologists and surgeons and whatever else in the world in LA. I really do. None of them can figure out what caused my illness. It's in autoimmune inducement. What caused it? We have no idea. Hmm. Did the little old woman know you no. boys were doing no. something? No. no, she did not. We didn't even get close to her house. No, hmm. we didn't even get there. But I, you know, uh, there, there's I, in my my perception of the way the universe is structured. You know, there's there's light and dark. There's yin and yang. There's right and wrong. There's you know positive and negative. It exists everywhere, and it takes many forms. So you know, we don't really understand how all of this stuff works. But certainly, what you were talking about earlier, and I end my book by the way uh, with a statement of, uh, I say. You know the little little bumper cars that you get at the fairground, uh, where people drive around and bump into mm -hmm. one another. Yes, yes. Different cars or bumper cars or whatever you call them. At the back of the car, there's an aerial sticking up, touching you know a field of either chicken wire or some wiring above the right, where it gets its DC electrical power from. Right, right. And as these bumper cars go around, you know sparks often fly from that, from the top of these. And I said. You know, I kind of see all of us as being 
inhabitants of a little bumper car, we've all got an aerial connected to a grid above us, all of us. We are all connected to an invisible cosmic grid. We are all connected to something that connects each of us. Yeah, this is the basic hyperdimensional model, okay. That's what you've been saying earlier, yeah. And I absolutely implicitly believe that this is so. We, it's real, it exists. And it's, it's not only here, it's, it, it's, it's a bond that we all share all over the cosmos. I'm sure with other beings and entities as well. And I'm quite sure you were talking about, uh, earlier on in the show, you were talking about the James Webb um, telescope. Mm. That's just happened. I actually stayed up all night on um, New Year, uh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> me too, me too. Yeah, to watch the launch of that thing because it's a big deal. One of the one of the most amazing shows I've ever done. Uh, As Biden was, said, it's a big <clears throat> deal. It, it's a big deal. But you know, one of the most wonderful shows I I ever worked on was a a retrospective of the Voyager mission. Ah. To the, Voyager one and Voyager two. Yep. And I met I met all the engineers. I met all the designers of those spacecraft. I met all the scientists. This was in nineteen ninety. Uh, 1990, 90, the show aired in 91. It was called Ceylon Voyager, and that's just after Voyager 2 encountered uh, Neptune. And um, I was at uh, NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., when Voyager 2 looked back at the solar system and took a photograph of our entire solar system, including the Earth. Yeah, Carl's famous pale blue dot image. Carl's famous pale blue dot. I was there when that event happened and when he announced it to the press. Yeah, you know. So I I have a great affinity with that. I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it there. Last half hour to go, folks. Uh, And as they used to say, the best is yet to come. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg. We're kind of having a hyperdimensional romp through the high points of the predictions of his life that came true, including a return to Africa that literally in the face of allopathic medicine that basically said, well, there's nothing we can do, it cured him. How and what infected him in the broadest sense of the word in the first place? These are not trivial questions particularly in terms of what's going on on the planet right now. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I want to talk to you in the audience around the planet tonight. I want to talk to you about the kind of meta objectives of the Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight, this radio show that you're listening to right now. As you know, we have sponsored a number of important research projects through this show over the last couple, three years. We've raised money for electrogravitics 
for M-Drive Research. Um, we're looking very hard now at this whole orgone accumulator technology, and I want to use the Accutron, this inertial sensor, which I developed following the lead of Bruce De Palma many, many decades ago, to put the Accutron in an orgone situation, in the accumulator or in an orgone blanket, these multi-layered uh, concoctions that somehow seem to trap or densify the ether. And yes, ether is real. There's a physics of the ether. And the problem is that it all costs money. It all costs funds. So we've added a new wrinkle to the Other Side of Midnight website. Over on the left-hand side, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com and just look over on the left, you'll see under the uh, banners which say things like home, tonight show, there's a donate button. And there's also some donate buttons in the middle of the page if you uh, happen to get the right show. But mainly over on the left, it says donate now. Normally, I don't like asking folks for money. But money is energy. Money is the ability in this culture to do things, to accomplish things. And as Father Tiso said a moment ago, there is a huge need and necessity for a game changer. We need to bring humanity back together to realize its commonality and not its differences. And that's in part what this show is trying to do with a variety of programs. And part of our research effort is trying to do with a variety of, of uh, projects there. So if you have some spare change, if you have more than spare change, go to that button, go to the left hand donate now button and click on it and send us what you can spare because communication in the 21st century costs. Everything costs, but communication more than anything costs because you have transmitters and internet connections and bright people and complexity of computers. Oh my God, complexity of computers. It all ultimately has to be paid for somehow. And as you know, you can also join Club 19.5. That's an easy way to support the show because then you get archives, you get seminars, you get this thing we're going to be doing in the next few weeks on how to look at these images. And um, there are ways you can look that will give you insights to what you're seeing that will not be found uh, on NBC or CBS or ABC. So again, go to the left-hand side of tonight's show page or the guest page. Click on the donate button and send us what you can spare because, believe me, every dollar helps. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. Final uh, half hour here in the land of enchantment. My guest this morning is uh, Lionel Friedberg, and we're talking about the the power, the hyperdimensional power of prediction, and then literally some kind of interdimensional healing, the capability of reaching through time beyond space. And in his case, literally ridding him of some kind of what, what would you think it was? Some kind of uh, maybe maybe a, a lower life form from some higher dimension, a parasite that was uh, kind of sucking your life energy away. 
it could well be that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't tried to put a face or a picture or a name to it. Um, I just think of it as being very negative energy, and it could be, you know, it could be a, it could be some form of a, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it could be what you describe, but it could just be darkness and negativity, uh, which is rife throughout the universe. And as we learn more about the way physics and the way the universe works, you know, it's a violent place. There's a lot of darkness and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of difficult, a lot of, a lot of. Uh, a lot of, um, I wouldn't call it negative stuff, but, uh, uh, you know, there's violence everywhere uh, around us. Galaxies colliding and stars exploding and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, there is positivity and there is birth and there is creation and there is life and there is, you know, creativity comes out of all these things. So for every galaxy that you have smashing into another one and creating a lot of chaos and darkness or whatever else, you know, something is born out of that. And when you think about this earth, which was born in violent times, uh, you know, the, 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 the way planets are formed and the way suns explode and all of those things, what happens? I mean, you know, you eventually you get amazingly beautiful and incredibly uh, extraordinary complex life forms and beauty as well as everything else. You know, it's looking at it's like looking at the sunset and saying, oh, isn't that gorgeous and pretty? Well, it is. But do we have any idea about the amount of, of, of nuclear furnace energy going on in the sun at that moment to create that, uh, that image that we're looking at? So there's a double side to everything that we look at around us. And um, I think we have to be conscious of that. So as I was trying to um, get to in my previous statement, and maybe we um, – trying to get there in a very roundabout, awkward manner, because I find all this stuff absolutely rivetingly fascinating. When I did that Voyager show, it gave me such an amazing uh, sense of the awesome size and complexity of the universe. And now, you know, the physicists are saying, oh, there's not one universe. There are many universes. They are, it's a multiverse out there. It's, it's more than one universe. And the latest theory is that, you know, there are many, many multiverses living, existing alongside one another. Think of it as being... Well, see, I was kind of alluding to this in my opening, you know, every week I do this a couple of times a week uh, about the web, because web yeah. is going to be able to reach back to that moment within, a, you know, a, a brief period of time of, right. the, of the, quote, Big Bang. Now, Precisely. Yes. There, there, is, there, are, there are two ideas. One is the universe never existed before. There was an event... And now we, here we are 13.7 billion years later. Yes. The other idea, which frankly I'm more attracted to, is yes. that there is this very complex multiverse. Yes. In higher dimensions, you have these entities called brands or brains kind of floating around. And when they collide, they, that collision gives birth to another universe. And yeah. so the 13.7 billion year event that Webb is going to look back to is really not the birth of everything. It's just the birth of the latest cycle of the local thing that's us or what led but, to us. And also, let's, let's expand that kind of thinking just a little bit as well. It also pertains only to this universe. Yeah, exactly. There are others alongside 
this one. And it's not necessarily on a different level of frequency or vibration. It's, 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 it's actually as physical as this one is. But physics is such an extraordinary science that time and dimension and distance and space and all of those things mean absolutely nothing. They could well be huge bubbles of universes mm-hmm. around one another in a huge, endless vacuum at the same time. Uh, we don't know that that is not the case. And it, it, it just opens up the mind so much. So I'm so pleased you opened the show with Webb <laughs> because now that Webb is up, well, it's now that it's parked and it's they, of course, they're fine-tuning the mirrors and getting them and all And everything alive. is going 100%. And everything is going amazingly. I think it's the most extraordinary thing. I think, you know, Webb really is just one of the most incredible pieces of equipment ever devised by humanity. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, as you correctly said earlier, not only is it going to show us deep into distance, but it's going to show us deep into time. It's going to take us way back to the beginning of where all this began, you know, after you, as you correctly said, after the Big Bang. Uh, and we'll be able to see because, you know, half when we look up at the sky at night, I know folks realize this, that most of what you're seeing doesn't, isn't, isn't exactly as you're seeing it. It's as it was. When those objects, when the light from those objects started their journey to the Earth, the planets are, of course, because they are in our neighborhood. They just nearby. Yeah, remember but, going back to Hubble when 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 uh, the Slifer, the guy at the Lowell, yes. actually figured out the uh, expansion first, and then Hubble and Mount Wilson took it over because, of course, the Lowell Observatory was persona yeah. non grata, so politically right. <clears throat> they gave it the kiss of death. So everybody thinks that the expanding universe comes from Hubble. No, it comes no. from a guy named Slifer working yeah. under Lowell at the Lowell Observatory in northern mm-hmm. Arizona years before Hubble and Mount Wilson yeah. took it over. Talk but about yeah. intellectual theft. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. But you know, Richard, here's, here's another aspect of, of, of Webb that is so extraordinarily exciting. Because of its resolving power, uh, and its 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 resolving power is is so very much greater than Hubble. I'm not sure what the number is. You probably have access to those to those figures, but it's 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 able to see with such clarity compared to what Hubble was able to do. And Hubble itself was a miracle. Is that you know it's going to reveal to us how many other exoplanets exist now let's just remind people that exoplanets are planets that 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 orbit stars outside of our solar system and exoplanets of course if they support life they have to be in the goldilocks zone they have to be in a if 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 life is consistently the way it is on earth they have to be it's the planet hasn't because can't be too cold, it can't be too hot. So the ideal distance of a planet going around a star needs to be kind of where we are here, which is perfect for the evolution of life as we I know. was just going to say, but only as life as we know it. Because yeah. now, of course, going back to Voyager, yeah. remember when Voyager went by Jupiter and the yes. most amazing thing it discovered? And I remember because I was standing next to Sagan looking at one of the TV screens that morning. Yeah. It took close-up photographs of Europa. Uh Uh-huh. A little moon, the size of our moon, 
yeah. orbiting Jupiter, one of the four Galilean satellites. The difference is Europa seems to be covered by a incredible crust of ice yeah. underneath of which there's about a hundred mile deep ocean. That's right. And, and I the- wrote a paper in 1980 yeah. which predicted that NASA would someday find A, the ocean, and B, that there was life in the ocean, and thus I launched, I didn't know at the time, the whole idea that life can exist on worlds that are not our distance from the sun. So when you look at the galaxy and the literally trillions of planets that are now extrapolated from the work uh, of the uh, space telescopes Uh like Kepler and TESS and Hubble, there could be a galaxy filled with life which never knows anything outside its universe except for the shell of ice above it. Precisely. So if Webb starts to show us how many other exoplanets, at the moment we know of something like 4,700. Give give or take, yeah, you're right. Give or take. Well, Webb will multiply that number by some enormous figure. I have no idea what it is, but let's say it's times 10. I mean, that just gives you a tiny, tiny, tiny insight into how many other worlds there are out there where there will be intelligent life. We can't possibly be alone. There must be other entities out there, and life may not always follow the course as it does down here. It may not always be carbon-based as it is on the Earth. And, you know, it, it just opens up our minds to the possibility of what is out there and how complex and amazing. I have is. had a friend on. His name is uh, Greg Matloff. He's an yeah. astronomer out of New York. He uh, works at uh, SUNY and a number of other institutions. He mm-hmm. has a model, which yeah. really is kind of a really interesting model that stars themselves could be intelligent Entities, And why not? Absolutely, why not? But he's got data. It's not uh, just a theory. He's got a model and data. And if, if you look at it in terms of the hyperdimensional torsion field model, yeah, the commonality is the huge plasma that stars are. Because plasmas, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, gas clouds that are of equal ionic composition, you know, yeah. negative and positive charges, those turn out to be the conduit in our yeah. dimension, three dimensions, between this dimension and higher dimensions. And if right. life and intelligence is a projection from higher dimensions into what we think of as organic life forms, it could equally be a projection from higher dimensions into stellar plasma life forms, which means we all could literally be children of the sun. Absolutely. What did Sagan say? We are all star stuff, right? <laughs> yep. And yep. that's that's probably what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I met a really interesting guy. I did a, I did a series for National Geographic called The Shape of Life. And it was all about how body plans are formed in nature. You oh, know, what makes, yes, yes, yes. What makes a worm a worm? You know, what makes a, 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 a shell being look the way it does what is it that drives the, the, the phyla the families you know it's 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 all about the phyla in the in the animal kingdom and uh it, it was a terrific series we we did it out of uh, monterey in california and we our studios were based 
uh, right next to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is one of the most extraordinary scientific ex institutions, I think, in the United States. Was, and it's, was, it's just, uh, was that the one they actually shot Star Trek Four at? And uh, no, I don't. Um, I thought they I, did that at the Monterey Aquarium. Uh, that could be the that could be the one. It could well be. I'm, I I I I I have to profess I don't remember, but I think you may well be right. Yeah, I think you may well be right. It's a fantastic facility. It really is extraordinary. And I, I made great friends there, by the way, with an octopus. There's an octopus there <laughs> because that octopus comes up to you. It it, it comes up. It 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 looks at you. It's a gigantic creature they have in this enormous tank, and it comes right up to the glass, and it stares at you, and you look into that eye of mm. that animal. You are seeing intelligence. It is conscious of you. It is conscious of that fact that another entity, another creature is looking at it. It knows that. Are you, you know, aware that octopi could, yeah. in fact, be extraterrestrial beings? I it wouldn't surprise me. Um, there is a model out there. It wouldn't surprise me for one moment. But, you know, Richard, how about this? I actually believe that we all uh, have some extraterrestrial genes within us, all of us, including humans. That's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. I think that somewhere in the past, you know, if you follow our – I did a wonderful documentary years ago uh, uh, about the Raymond Dart who discovered the first – Australopithic, Australopithic. Oh, yes, yes, in, in, in Africa. In Africa, yeah. And uh, I did a biography of him and uh, about finding these first fossils. And, of course, uh, Mary and, 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 and Louis Leakey were the ones who actually started finding them all over Kenya and Tanzania and the Olduvai Gorge. And then wasn't, eventually – Wasn't Dart in South Africa? Wasn't he yes, the, he the was. king he... of anthropologists in South Africa? Totally, 100%. You're absolutely spot on. And I did a uh, thing of, of, with him – and we went out into a cave once, and there were all these Australopithecine fossils. And he, you know, and these 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 are hominids, uh, of course, our ancestors, that are probably between two point five and three million years old. Uh, but the line that became human, although you can see a direct, um, an anatomical progression. It's all very well having that, but Dart said to me, he said, you know, I don't think we'll actually ever find the real missing link because I don't think it exists. I think there's something that else that was going on. And he just said that out of the blue one day. And I thought, my God, here's an answer. Well, wait, 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 wait. That's the whole model of Arthur Clarke's 2001. Of course it is. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. So here's the thing, you know. We now, because of, 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 of CRISPR and our knowledge of genetics and of DNA and how we're able to understand strands that make up DNA, we can trace ourselves back 250 to 300,000 years. But mm -hmm. that's the thing. you go beyond that and our DNA record stops, something happened about 250 to 300,000 years ago, some kind of manipulation or alteration Happened well, you know our... what my favorite model is, don't you? Which one? What, what? Inter intervened in the nursery to manipulate mm. us, to change us? That's that's exactly what I'm what I'm what I'm what I'm what I'm aiming at here. That's exactly what yeah, I'm well, talking about. But you know yeah. where I think it came from. Tell me if you followed my work. Yeah. Mars. Mars. Yeah. 
But do you think that Mars was the origin? No, just no, no, no. It was another way station on the long trek. Yeah. So the so the, the the big face, the monument, and all the rest of it was just built by those who actually also came from somewhere. I else. think the, I think the whole Sidonia, the face, and all that is the memorialization. Because remember, the dates fit. It's yeah. half a million, a quarter of a million years ago. Yes. That's the memorial to whoever intervened here to change us to become and, what and we became. That- isn't that interesting? Because that dovetails with that's where our DNA record stops and our yes, current record exactly. begins. Yes, exactly. And it's yeah. what NASA will do anything to prevent us from knowing. Yeah, I know. In fact, I am of the opinion that what's going on in Ukraine, mm-hmm. I may be you know, one of a kind in this, but I think what's going on in Ukraine and the yes. world's attention being focused on the horror and tragedy and who mm-hmm. cannot be riveted to this soap opera day after day after day after day. Absolutely. Excluding everything else from media discussion, up to <laughs> including Trump and elections and democracy here and yeah. the economy, everything is sidetracked now by this war. I think it was designed, not by yeah. Putin, but by whoever's pulling his strings to yes. prevent yeah. us from going yes. through the revelation of who we really are at this unique moment in planetary history. Well, of course, there are those who will say, oh, well, yeah, it's the reptilians. It's the it's the nasty ETs. It's the malevolent ETs who are pulling the strings and who are manipulating us even now. I think, it's, I think it's slightly higher in dimensionality. I think you're right. I, I agree with you. I, but I also think that there may well be malevolent ETs who have had some influence on us and our evolution and on our affairs. Yeah, but ET- are they in and of themselves doing it or are they themselves it's chattel it's on, of on a, a higher, higher force? It's on a higher level. You exactly, exactly. It's on, a, it's on a higher level. Now, the reason it's, I say that is because since yeah. since December, you may not be aware of this, Yeah. we have opened hailing frequencies literally with somebody out there. Uh-huh. We started with radio transmissions through a very high-powered transmitter in northern Arizona, beaming okay. a set of coded special geometric and, and frequency constants to Oumuamua. Uh, remember, yeah. All right? Yes, of And course. we got answers by radio. But so, do we know that that's coming from Oumuamua or no, no, somewhere? No, 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 it's not coming from Oumuamua. That, no, was, okay. that was merely the excuse. But I think, but isn't more and more? Some say it's a derelict spacecraft. That's my perspective, and I think somebody attacked it. But that's Ah. a whole other show. Abby Loeb and I separately came up with the idea this thing was an intelligent artifact. Me, because of the geometry of the orbit of the trajectory. And its behavior, yeah, of course, and it's yeah. And the fact that it accelerated leaving the sun, and the only physicist I know who has a model to explain that is a guy who is now no longer with us. His name is Dr. Bruce De Palma. He is the deceased brother of the famous filmmaker, Brian Brian De Palma, Palma. Uh who did the most incredible movie about Mars and then split, literally fled to France and lived as an uh, outcast for years. What did Brian De Palma do about Mars? Remind me. He, he he did the film Mission to Mars, 
which is all about the face and the seeding of life on Earth from Mars, et cetera, et cetera. And he had so so much money from NASA that he had to leave the country because NASA disowned him. They will never admit they spent a dime on the movie and they spent a fortune. Yeah, this I know that you know this kind of stuff goes on all the time. He double crossed them. Yeah, and then he fled. What do you feel about Sitchin and Nibiru and all of that? Uh, Does that come into your uh, thinking at all, or is that outside of the parameters? No, 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 no. I think Sitchin got part of the story, but he Mm -hmm. didn't have a big enough. He didn't have a big enough lens. And 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 the guy you're going to want to talk to after the show about Sitchin is uh, Keith Morgan. You talked to him briefly before the show. Oh, Keith, yes, yeah, okay. Yeah, he, yeah. Is our, he is our resident uh, Sitchin expert. Ah, okay, yeah. Fascinating stuff, very, very... I, I interviewed Sitchin for a show. I did uh, a ah. show of Ancient Mysteries um, called... Uh, the, it was either, I think it was called First Encounters or something like that. But basically, they're looking at UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Yes. Down the centuries. And even looking at uh, you know Egyptian records, I mean, there's a stone uh, that uh, that is where is that stone? I think it is uh, it's in it's in Syria, if I remember correctly. No, it's not in Syria. It's uh, anyway where it, it talks about um, you know um, UAPs that that were around. I mean, they've been around since the pharaonic times. We've got records of these things for thousands of years. See, one of the interesting things is that since '47. The position of the U.S. government has been nothing out there exists, right? And then suddenly in 2017, the New York Times on the front page publishes the story of this little secret $22 million, you know, funding through the Senate for the Pentagon to kind of look at some of this. And then now we have an office in the Pentagon reporting directly to the Secretary of Defense. And there are discussions of hearings on Capitol Hill and we're yeah. about to enter the new realm of, oh, my God, we're not alone. And what happens? Putin starts a fucking war. Pardon yeah, my French. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. do not see this as coincidental. I agree with you. The dark side, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, will mm. do anything to prevent us from knowing who we really are. Absolutely. And why do you think that may be? I'm not supposed to be asking the questions <laughs> here, but why, why do you think that is so? Because who we are is so much more powerful than who we've been allowed to think we are. And yeah, somebody, somebody is terrified that we'll rediscover who we really are. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Totally, 100%. Okay, I've got a mission. Should you choose to accept it? <laughs> which we will discuss off the air. Hey, we only got about uh, uh, two minutes left. Plug your book. Tell people where they can get it. Tell them why they should get it. And tell them uh, when you're going to be back. Okay, if you want to expand your mind, folks, and just exp- and, uh, and I wrote this book in order to share this with you, not because I, I wanted to tell you, you know, what I've, what I've experienced, but I wanted to share it with you so that you can experience the same sense of excitement and awe and wonder that I have about this amazing universe in which we live. And the book is called Forever in My Veins. And the subtitle is How Film Led Me to the Mysterious World of the African Shaman. But it's a much it's much more than the African Shaman. It's got a lot of stuff in it that I think you'll find fascinating. Forever in my veins, 
and it's available from any good bookstore or on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or you name it. Whoever sells books, it's available now. And I think you'd find it as re revelatory as I did when I experienced what I did about the stuff that I've put into this book for you. And we also have a direct link to your publisher next to your bio on the other side of Midnight Tonight. And uh, do, you have, do you have my website, lionelfriedberg.com? No, but we're going to add it. <laughs> okay. www.lionelfriedberg.com. Excellent. Uh, hey, we've reached the end of the runway. I guess you're going to have to come back because there's so much more to talk about. I this love is, This has been thank delightful. You. Lionel, thank you so much. Um, you give us a view on the universe that is desperately, desperately needed right now. My guest this morning has been Lionel Friedberg, award-winning producer uh, and uh, filmmaker and all-around really great guy. Next weekend, tune in again. And until then... Third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.